Good morning. No bad days. How can it be a bad day when I've got coffee? Folks, if you're a fan of The Voice, I do believe it is finals week uh, on The Voice Australia. And what better way to have a bit of a chit chat this morning than ding dong, who's at my door? None other than Mr. Michael Dolce from The Voice. How are you, Michael? Cheers, Rick. Thanks for having me, mate. Appreciate no problem, it. mate. No problem at all. So um, that's a cool little setup you've got going there, mate. Uh, you're in, in between houses, I believe. That is correct. Yeah. Well spotted. Yeah. Um, I'm in a temporary, um, well, you would call it a little granny flat. Yeah. Um, and this is where I do my videos. Well, where I have done my videos in the past year. Um, yeah, so I hope to get in my new studio and um, get cracking on a new album, perhaps. Nice one, nice one. We'll have to talk about that in a, uh, in a while and find out what you're up to with new music, etc. And you said new album, so that I assume that means you've got some past ones as well, huh? Well, one. One. In particular. Cool. It's about nine years old now, so I think I'm due for a new one. Yeah, about time you update that. Yeah, yeah. Mate, I'm going to start right at the beginning. How did the love affair with the guitar start for you? How did you get started playing? Oh, well, okay, so... My dad um, loved, you know, strumming the old acoustic guitar, you know, Italian songs, folk songs, loved his country music as well. Um, you know, he knew a few chords and stuff, so I'd watch him play and obviously inspired me to pick up the guitar. Um, as a matter of fact, at an early age, I um, every time my parents would buy me a, a little ukulele, uh, the first thing I would do is, you know, go to the nearest tree and break a little branch off and take the leaves off and play violin with it. So maybe my calling was to, to play violin. Who knows? Cool, you know, cool. You know, will and behold, mate, my uh, my parents ended up buying me a, a standard-sized guitar, yep. which was, um, I don't know how to, I didn't know how to take it, actually. I was excited, but I was disappointed at the same time because I knew I couldn't put that guitar on my neck, you know? Oh, really? It was too big. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I was really excited. I, I was pretty excited about putting into guitar lessons and um, – yeah, I just I pretty much just fell in love with it. You know, it was pretty much I just remember even at the age of, you know, seven when I started, actually a little bit earlier, you know, wanting to do this for the rest of my life. Um, yeah, there was no no other agendas on, on the on the plate. I just wanted to play guitar. Um, but yeah, I mean, I grew up listening to and I know you you're right into him and I think if I ever meet Hank Marvin I'd cry. Uh, the Shadows was like it for me. I grew up listening to The Shadows. That's all I knew. Um, I learned a lot of all, most of the stuff by ear. You know, back in those days, Rick, um, you know, we didn't have Tab or That's YouTube. Right. Or That's right. We just had record players, man, and I put little weights on the on the record to, to slow down the vinyl, you know, so I could figure out what the hell was going on. And, of yep. course, that, that would change the pitch. So, you know, it wasn't very helpful. So then I'd tune the guitar down, try and sort of get to that pitch and, uh, and then tune it back up when I wanted to play it with the record. But, um, yeah, I, I, I did a lot of that, you know, just learned a lot of the shadow stuff and listened to a lot of Dad's music, you know, which was um, you know, a lot of Italian folk songs and a lot of country, you know, Willie Nelson, Johnny Cash, um, Elvis, you know, that was all going on in our household. Um, so for me, you know, definition of guitar playing was always about clean guitar you know, I missed out on the whole Jimi Hendrix, Eddie Van Halen, Jimmy Page. I didn't even know they existed, you know, until I was probably about 
17, 18 years old. Wow, so, okay. Yeah, so I didn't I didn't know rock. I mean, okay, so I knew I knew of Satriani when Satriani came out, only because this is another funny story. Um, my a good friend of mine just bought the uh, Surfing with the Alien album, and he bought it around to my place, and, and we put it on, and he was like, listen to this guitar player, it's amazing. And of course, you know, hearing distortion guitar, to me, that sounded like a keyboard to me, like I'd never heard anything like it. Yeah, right. Um, so we, we had this massive argument, you know, he, I, I was telling him it's a keyboard, it's not guitar, and he was saying, no, it's guitar, and I was like, no, it's a keyboard, and we didn't speak to each other for two weeks, it was funny. Um, <laughs> But, and that's how it ended, you know, I just thought it's, it's a keyboard, so there's no way guitar can, this is how guitar sounds, and I'd put on the shadows, I said, that's guitar, you know, then I'd put on a bit of Elvis, you know, that's guitar, you know, and, and you know, Bill Haley in the comments, I had these albums as well, and that's guitar, you know, it was always about the clean guitar, so um, when it was uh, time to apologise to him, <laughs> um, I sort of had to swallow my pride, the, um, the only way... Uh, that came about was I happened to see a guitar player magazine which had Satriani on the front cover and he was talking about the album and he'd sort of talk about all the songs, you know, how how he did the Ice Nine thing with some foil and, you know, all these effects things that he used to do and and I was just I was just blown away. I was just thinking, how is this possible? And in that particular edition of that um, guitar player there was a one of the they used to put these floppy Plasticky sort of sound, sound discs or something they called those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. those little yeah. records. You know? and, yep. and on there was um, what was that song called? Was it Crush of Love? Yep. Was yep. it the Crush of Love where he does the arpeggio thing at the start? So that whole ad nine thing. Yeah. And and that was him. And I was just sort of doing these ones, just going, "How is he? How is this happening? How is it?" I just didn't comp- I couldn't comprehend it. Yeah. And I still couldn't because my setup was um, a Fender Music Master, which I still have here, cool. uh, that my parents had bought me, um, and a little Roland Cube amp, little Ted Water. No dirty sounds on that thing. You know, yeah. it's all clay. Yeah. So, but the funny thing was, and the way I sort of discovered um, distortion or overdrive um, was I used to plug in my headphones into the headphone in of this Roland Cube yeah. as a practice and I just listen to myself playing and you know one day my brother thought it was going to be funny if he turned the amp all the way up and then of course I'd turn the amp on and I'd play you know deafen myself but what had happened was that he turned everything on full and I turned the amp on and I'd accidentally hit the strings of the guitar and I could hear this sound like this distortion sound like the amp was overdriving and freaking out. And I was like, and I played it again. I thought, that's the sound, you know? Wow, that is- cool. So from that point, you know, on went the Joe Satriani, the Surfing with the Alien album, and that was it. That was my life from that point. You know, it was Shadows up to that point. Yep. And then from then on, it was, you know, Joe Satriani. I wanted to be Joe Satriani. I didn't care. I was trying to make the noises. I didn't even know what I was doing. You know, self-taught at the time, apart from having, you know, probably about a year and a half, two years of lessons, um, you know, playing or reading, learning how to read, which I'm very grateful for, um, which I still use to this day of the voice, obviously. 
Um, but, you know, predominantly at that point, I was just all about Satriani and, man, I just, yeah, wow. Wow, <laughs> Blew my- wow. Mate, I, I didn't ask you before, but I figure we must be of similar age because, yep. yeah, I can remember surfing with the alien coming out and just yep. how big an influence that was on everybody. I, I had three guys for yep. for the longest time, Joe Satriani, Eddie Van Halen, and Steve I, and that was the holy yep. trinity for me. But yep. so funny that you said you started off with Hank Marvin because I'm very grateful that when I first started playing guitar, my next-door neighbour – uh, played guitar in the 60s and he pulled me aside and said, mate, it's all about Hank. And yeah. I do remember other guys at school that were getting into Randy Rhodes and stuff like that who missed the whole point about yeah. it's all in how you touch those strings and, and making one or two notes sing. So yeah. it's amazing yeah. how much of an influence um, Hank Marvin is on, on, on all the greats too that that I admire, all your, your Brian Mays and your, all the big English guys, you know, David Gilmore, oh, etc. Yeah. You talk to them. Yeah, the melodic players for me. I mean, obviously growing up, you know, listening to – well, Italian folk music is very melodic stuff, you know, and um, listening to that growing up, listening to that and, and all the country stuff, as mentioned, um, you know, that really rubbed off of me. So – you know, subconsciously, I mean, that's what I was always looking for. I was always looking for something melodic, something that resembled a song, yep. you know, that you could sing. You know, there was always a structured, you know, formula with the shadows and, and Satriani where there was a verse, there was a chorus, there was a bridge, there was a solo section. You know, there was always that. And I was always, I was always um, drawn to that type of music, that type of formula. You know, Satriani, that's... Uh, you know, that's why I was so drawn to his music because I could relate to it straight away. Yeah. You know? It was, wow, I can sing these songs. You know, it was just, just phenomenal. Well, you know, and always with me, always with you, was on the radio, you know, number one on the billboards, you know, in the States. You know, has anyone else done that? Or, I don't even know. I don't think you know, so, man. It's instrumental. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, well, yeah. yeah. I mean, that song, for me, many hours of trying to – learn all the nuances of that and yep. because like you said man just his melodies and his arrangements it was like a pop song yeah. it wasn't just yeah. check out how fast i can play check out this latest trick he had uh, all that he wrote the book yeah on that. Uh, he yeah. didn't write the book on that he took it one step further i think eddie van halen to me really wrote the book and all that stuff absolutely yeah. man absolutely yeah. Yeah. but he definitely mate satriani innovator steve i you know all those guys around that time for me um yeah they were my heroes you know, at that point um, of, of learning this new style, you know, this modern way of playing, um, as I saw it, you know, which it was at the time. Um, yeah, it was just mind-blowing, mind-blowing time for me. Mate, it's funny you say about uh, playing through uh, the Fender amp and the, the, the Roland Cube, uh, because my introduction to playing guitar was using the school, my, my high school's Roland Cube 60 keyboard amplifier. And that had a couple of inputs, so there's no distortion on that. And again, <laughs> I was playing Shadows tunes through a very clean yeah. amplifier. Yeah. Uh, and and you said about the the happy accident of finding distortion. Yeah. My best mate in high school, man, he had some older brothers who were musicians and into electronics and things, and he built an amplifier out of a car stereo. He yeah. He got the somehow. No, 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 no. I tell a lie. It was your ghetto blaster kind of thing. And he wired a guitar lead into the playhead of that and somehow 
got that to come through out of his little ghetto blaster. And that distorted because of the level mismatch. And that was my introduction to distortion. It was like, <laughs> whoa, how's this? So very yeah. similar, very similar stories there, man. Yeah, but yeah. You said you, you got lessons for a year or two. And that yeah. got you down the path of reading, which you, you use. So yeah. you, you do read on the voice then? It's not yeah, a, look, I'm not, I'm not a great reader. Um, you know, taking on the gig initially was, that, that was my, um, yeah, my, yeah, I, when I was offered the gig initially, you know, I was a little bit scared about that, that part of the show, you know, about the reading side of things because my interpretation of doing a show like that was, you know, you've got to be an absolute, you know, gun of a reader. And I'm not that, you know. And I've learned a lot, you know, in these nine years I've been on the show. Um, but initially and um, the priority of, of that band when it first started was always to maintain a natural vibe, you know, the, it had to have edge. It didn't, you know, the musical director, Scott Applin, didn't want it to sound like everyone was reading, you know, or we turn up on the day and here's your charts and read away, you know, it was never about that. Um, we do get time to, to learn the songs. Um, it is a short period, but um, at least, you know, we've got the charts there. And, you know, and I sort of do my you know, interpretation of reading where I'll, I'll rub stuff out and, you know, I'll put like little stick men to go, go that way, you know. Yeah, or, yeah cool. You know, yeah. I've got my own way of, of sort of reading things and it's been working for me for nine years. So um, put it this way, if anyone, you know, that knew how to read like Rex Go or any of those gun guys, um, they'd look at my chart and go, you know, Michael, what the hell have you done? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever works well, for you. I know how to read it. It's, it works for me. You know? Yeah, absolutely. But I, I have learned a lot, you know, on the ship I've been on the show and you know, I'm very grateful for that uh, because it's something I, I, I feel it's necessary, you know, even if it's not at the point or at the level of doing theatre or these type of gigs, you need some sort of, you know, of a, of a formula that works for you that, you know, if you do get asked to do a gig, you can just quickly write some stuff out, you know, as long as you understand it, that's what's important, you know, and it gets you through the gig and, yeah, and that, and that for me um, is how I do it, you know. It's, yeah, all the guys hassle me out, in the, yeah. uh, you know, in the band. Yeah. It's, it's a classic, you know. Yeah. Because my ongoing joke is, you know, and probably a couple of the boys might be listening in now, um, it's always been, oh, well, you guys studied and you guys spent money, you know. I said, I didn't do any courses. I'm self-taught. You know, we're here at the same point, you know. <laughs> yeah. So you, you say self-taught, um, apart from those one, one or two years of lessons. Like, you didn't yeah. get lessons later on to, to catch up on your theory? I did. Or? I did. I've got about six, seven lessons of Dita Kleeman, which pretty much turned my world upside down. Um, cool. Dita was, was pretty much, I could put him down as probably one of the biggest turning points because of his lessons it was the biggest turning point in my plane um, up to that point I was listening to uh, a lot of Saturiani um, you know I got into Vinnie Moore heaps I was into Paul Gilbert Malmsteen uh, McAlpine you know all those shredders loved them you know um, and then of course Brett Garson came up and you know you were talking about the let me out solo and you interviewed him and stuff and and that was just like been I think I was about 16 at the time when I when I was, you know, walking past the TV and sort of, you know, oh, I was in the room learning Satriani, you know, yeah. and I came out, you know, after my six-hour 
practice regime. Um, I come out, I just perfect timing, you know, as it's sort of walking past, and of course that led me out. Th- no, it was actually when the war was over. Oh yeah, when he does that run, and I was just like, "What the hell was that?" You know, what was that? You know, I was keyboard for sure. Then walk back and remember. Then the next day, I just remember going into one of the music stores here in the city in Pitt Street, which was called Brashes at the time, and everyone was just buzzing about Brett Garson. Everyone was talking about this guy, Brett Garson, Brett Garson, and um, I was like, that's, that's, that must be the guy they're talking about from last night. And of course, I chased up the video and just played it to death. I could not believe what I was hearing. Yeah. And then from that point, it was all about Brett Garson for me. You know, it was just, it just changed my life. I didn't know how he was doing it. It just it sounded so different to Satriani. Um, so, yeah, it was like, wow. Okay. Then, you know, as, I think by the age of – I would have been about 20 at the time. I thought, you know, I was starting to listen to guys like um, Scott Henderson and Frank Gambale, mm-hmm. um, a lot of George Benson. And I didn't know what they were doing. It just sounded cool. It was just a different approach. You know, it sounded jazzy. Um, so I I hit up a guy called Dieter Clearman, um, and I knew Dieter um, prior to me asking him for lessons, I saw him do a clinic um, at one of the local music stores, Lombardo Music, who, where I eventually ended up working at. Um, and Dita did a clinic, a clinic there for Ibanez. Yep. And this was just when Satriani had come out, and Dita was already playing the Satriani songs, yep. and that was like mind blowing because I was just watching him and just going, "What is he doing? He's hardly using his right hand." and Let's go. And that's where I picked up on the legato, and I started asking him after the clinic. I said, "How are you doing that?" And he was showing me. So many years later, <clears throat> he, um, I called him up, and I just, I knew he was doing fusion stuff, and I'd gone and seen him play a couple of times, and I asked him for some lessons, and um, I'll never forget the first lesson. I walked in, and he, I was like, "Dude, I, I want to learn how to play fusion guitar," you know. And he was like, "Yeah, no worries, Michael. Okay." Um, so he puts on this one called Vamp, you know, and I remember it was like there's a G minor seven thing and, and I started playing over the top and I sort of stopped and I said to him, Oh look, dude, I wanna I wanna learn how to play fusion, you know. This yeah. is only one chord. He goes, No, just just play, you know, and have, have a bit of a play and of course, you know, sixteen bars later I was done. Like I yeah. that's it, I'm done, you know. And it, and I and I sounded like, you know, Vinnie Moore meets Brett Garson trying to play, you know, pivoting classical licks, you know, over yeah. a, a G minor seven thing. And, of course, then Dita starts playing and he's going for five minutes and my jaw is just trying to pick my jaw off, you know, from up the, from the floor. And I was like, that's where it all changed for me. And then I had about seven lessons and I recorded all the lessons. He let me record the lessons. And that's those seven lessons pretty much got me going for the next ten years. Like I just wanted to catch up to that point, the way he was playing and, and it was all about that lesson, those lessons. Um, but, uh, yeah, and then I sort of I did what I had to do, you know, and then pretty much went on my own path and tried to sort of work things out on my own, and, you know, and that was it pretty much. Man, it's funny that you bring up Dita because I, I was going to say I went to a, a, an Ibanez clinic in the early 90s with Dita, but no, I actually picked up Dita from the airport. I was working for a musician's pro shop at the time, so I would have been about 17 or so. Yeah. And 
Dita, if you happen to be watching this, I'm the guy that almost threw up on you when I took my, your bags out of the back of my car when I was dropping you off at the airport. I don't know what the hell happened. I just had this sudden, oh my God, I'm going to be sick. And I can remember like almost all over his shoes. So, but yeah, Dita was mind blowing. Um, because I yeah. hadn't seen anybody play like that before. Yeah. As you said, man, Satriani was out and you'd hear all these things. You'd see the odd film clip. It's like, how the hell is he doing that? Yeah. So there was a couple of standout guys for me that I saw playing in clinic. And that was um, Dita Kleeman and the other one, Simon Gardner. Yeah. Simon had just gone to Musicians Institute. He's a legend. And uh, had come back and was doing some uh, some some lesson, uh, some some clinics around town. And I caught that. And yeah, just that whole three note per string kind of approach was very yeah. foreign to me. Uh, yeah. And yeah, that really does open up a lot of doors, doesn't it, for, for flow when you're playing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Simon, I've had the pleasure of having Simon as a guest at my masterclass when I was in Brisbane last. Just an amazing player and just an amazing guy. Uh, he's got a new single coming out. What's that? Tomorrow it's coming out. Cool. So yeah, check it out, guys. Um, uh, yeah, just just an awesome guy. I've had the play- we when we do the um, guitar show in Melbourne there, or the last year's one. You know, we got to hang out a lot because we we're in the Fractal Audio stand, and um, just a just an awesome guy to be around. You know, just he an is awesome a nice dude. Yeah. yeah, yeah, great player. Yep, love him. Now you mentioned when you were getting lessons off Dita that you, you had a handful of lessons and then took that away and really worked on that yeah uh, i gotta say that's something that that i did as well around about the same age i got some lessons off a local guy here mark bergman who was a, yeah. a jazz fusion kind of player and almost the same kind of story i, I went in there i was a little bit cocky i think I, i'd won an yeah. under under 18 section of a guitar competition international oh, awesome. guitar, international guitar month uh locally yeah and I went there thinking, yeah, yeah, I can play. And I can remember him just starting to play over the uh, those records. The the name escapes me now. That the jazz guys all, all used to jam over. I got Jamie Ebersol. Yeah, that. Yeah, I think that's the ones. Yeah. And playing over that, and I just had nothing because I could play my rock stuff that I'd learnt. And then to hear him play, and exactly the same story, man. Where he, after about a month, he'd give me a whole bunch of things, and I thought. No, I'm just going to try and let this sink in before I get more. Uh, so I think, yeah. yeah, as much as getting regular lessons is a good thing to have somebody checking up on your technique and all, yeah. and all that kind of thing, just really absorbing something, not just yeah, glancing over it, eh? Like, so yeah, I, um, another turning point for me, not that this is about me, this, this is your, yeah. no, your chat, um, was uh, James Norbert Ivani having a, an online lesson with him maybe about two years yeah. ago. And he yeah. just took me through his morning practice warm-up yeah. routine. And I still do that regularly. And that's really brought out the flow. And yeah. one lesson was enough, you know, just to really, okay, now let's just work on that. So, um, yeah. yeah. Oh, man, I've got, James is another one, man. I've got to take my hat off too. He's just a lovely guy. And I just love his, his approach, you know, just, just as a human, you know, he's such a cool dude to hang around, you know. Yeah, yeah. And we, I had the, I had the pleasure of doing a um, a day uh, workshop with him and Chris Kamzelis, um, who's an, an absolute monster as well. Um, and just seeing his approach and the way he's just stuck to his lane, you know, he's just 
you know, this is what I do, this is the way I do it, you know, it just does not, you know, divert either side, he just straight down the middle, man, and he knows where he's going, you know, and I, I, it's inspiring to see that, and, you know, and I always sort of say to him, man, that's that's what I want to do, you know, yep. right where I want, I want to be James Avani, you know, cool dude. Yeah, so, man, you said you, you, know, you started off playing, um, at what point did you start playing with other musicians like playing in bands and stuff did you did that start off early for you um well the funny thing was that at the time i was i was going to um a lot of different churches actually it was my mates well the guys that lived in my street um would go to church and they were writing to music and they had a band and they were writing original songs um, and that really inspired me, and that sort of brought me into the band thing, you know, and and as a matter of fact, we sort of formed a band there for a little bit, and I was playing bass. I actually got a picture. I should should send it to you. It's classic. I'm using this SG bass-looking thing. It's hilarious. Cool. And we used to do a whole bunch of Midnight Oil covers, and um, which I love. You know, I, I sort of grew up listening to the Oils as well, and yep. just you know, Jim Magini and Martin Rossi, just, you know, inspiration on the guitar parts, you know. Um, so, you know, I was in a band with them and, and they'd bring me to the church and because I didn't know how to read or I just knew my thing, I just I just knew how to improvise, you know. Yep. So they'd be playing their songs and I'd just be improvising throughout the whole songs, you know. And I'd do a lot of that um, and then I just kept going and that was sort of like the introduction of the bands. But what I did do after that was um, I picked up the local street mag, which was Drum Media or off the street or on the street, whatever it was called at the time. Um, and I'd always go to the back section, you know, looking uh, for bands that are looking for guitar players that are working. Um, oh, look at that. I had a little freeze. That sometimes happens. But I'm sure that Michael, <laughs> that's a quite an unfortunate pose to be stuck in. But... I'm going to go to Skype and see if Michael phones back in, reconnecting. There is a poor network connection. Welcome to Australia, folks, where the internet is tops. Hello, he's back. I've got it now. He's back. He's back. Oh, and he's frozen again. See, live streaming. <laughs> so we're just going to sit here and look at these funny faces of Michael's. And folks, while I'm waiting for Michael to come back in for the internet to come good again, if I'm still going, apparently I am. <laughs> Let me try and do that face. Hang on, he's facing that way. Uh, folks, there is the live chat room. Feel free to ask us or Michael or me any questions you might have as we wait for Michael to Skype back in. I'm going to... End call with him and swipe him back. And let's see if we can get him. And yes, we're, we're back. back. We're back. There you go. Okay. No worries, I'll mate. We're off the phone now, so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mate, it, it's quite a classic, just the uh, the pose that you were stuck in there. It was mid, mid sentence and yeah. it was just like that. What's it? <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait to see that one back. Uh, Mate, as I was saying to you earlier, that's half the, the, the fun of doing this live. Um, yeah. 
and it used to totally freak me out, but uh, no, I know, I know they're going to scrape back in, so it's nothing now. It was all part of the script, guys. Yeah, it was meant to be. Yes, yeah. The funny thing is, man, I don't hear myself in my own cans. All I can hear is you, so I feel really detached from it. It's like I'm watching TV. Um, so I'm sure if I could hear myself, it would be a lot more of a ooh, radio voice on, and uh, ooh, folks, we'll be right back. And I just... What happens, happens. That's half the, <laughs> exactly <right>. <laughs> half <laughs> the fun. But uh, we were talking about um, your experience starting to play in bands, and you actually mentioned Midnight Oil that you're into. Yeah. You know, those guys. Dude, Massive I just, just a quick little story. They had the Commonwealth Games up this way recently, right? A year or yep, two ago. Yep. yep. Uh, I'm on the Gold Coast, Australia, if anybody's wondering. And I got to do a bit of work there. Um, and I, there was a drop-off point at a, a police citizens youth club where you drop your car off and then get a shuttle ride in. And as I went back after my shift, I, I went there. I could hear a band playing inside. And I went to have a look inside through the glass. And there's a drummer with his back to me right there. And I'm looking. And he turns to the side and I just go, fuck me, that's Rob Hurst from Midnight Oil. <laughs> and then I looked at the other guys and it was the two guitar players from Midnight Oil and the bass player yeah, from wow. Violent Femmes. And oh, they got their, yeah, they got their little surf guitar band, uh, The Break, I think they're called. Yeah, wow. And I'm like, oh, cool. These guys are playing the big main stage tomorrow. They must be rehearsing. And then I've looked at my, my pass and I've got, I've got an all access pass. Hello. <laughs> and I wandered in there like, I'm supposed to be here. And I sat down. And it's one of those things where you just try and pretend like, yeah, I'm supposed to be here, of course. And I look around cool, and, yeah. and uh, a friend of mine, Ta- Tony, Tony Hanyerman, was um, at the monitor console and he works around with a lot of big bands, guitar techs. Yeah, I know Tony. Well. You know Tony? He's yeah. awesome. Yeah. One so, of the best. Yeah. So Tony's at the monitor desk and I look over at him and it's just like, it's cool, man. I'm supposed to be here. All access. <laughs> and I quite literally sat there a few meters away from the two guitar players from Midnight Oil as they were oh, wow. playing playing this stuff. And your vision has frozen up on me again. Oh, no, you're back. You're back. Yeah. Um, that's cool if that happens now and then. So, yeah. yeah, man, to hear those guys up close playing and like we were talking about surf guitar music, Hank Marvin, etc., playing that style of music as well. That was great. Yeah, wow. Wow. Yeah, look, you know, the boys from Midnight Oil is just – like I said, you know, I grew up listening to them, so that was they were a huge influence on guitar parts and, and learning about how two guitar players should should work together, you know. Um, so that was that was a huge huge uh, lesson in its own. Uh, you know, I I remember watching the um, live of Goat Island, you know, at all, which is a Triple J thing, uh, and I think I wore that tape out. It's just it's it's on YouTube. It's probably one of the best best concerts you'll ever see just they're on fire absolutely know. absolutely uh, just incredible incredible stuff man i, I gotta say um as much as we're, we're sort of raving about our love for satriani and and those kinds of guys um myself i learned like you to play by ear and before i yeah. got to a level that i could work out a lot of stuff like that there was some great stuff on the radio that um i was picking apart trying to learn how to play melodies and just the shapes guys would use. Yeah. Um, and for me, some of those guys, uh, Stuart Fraser from Noiseworks was a big oh, one. Man, the solos amazing. that he did. And yep. Keith Scott from Brian Adams' band. 
And yeah, amazing. So I, I know that when it comes to playing around around town or session stuff, there's a lot of guys that can shred, but they can't play those nice melodies that just that's the yeah. part that needed to be in that in that song. Yeah. What type of guys did you listen to um, around that time as well to get that that sense of playing? Oh, pop well, music? man, yeah. Well, the thing, you know, the players that I mentioned, you know, really rubbed off on me. I mean, I didn't. I didn't really listen to um, session guys, so to speak. You know, I was I was always into instrumentalists. You know, so I wasn't trying to base my playing or off of a session player, so to speak. You know, because I was so into what I was listening to. Um, you know, and it was all guitar. You know, yeah. I didn't have to wait just for that one solo. Um, but yeah, I mean. Yeah, none of, none of those guys were, I mean, they're amazing players. Um, and now, obviously, you know, when I hear stuff on the radio, I'm, I'm like, man, who's that, you know? And I'll look them up and it's just beautiful playing. And, but uh, I'm trying to think of a, of a solo that that really, in that vein, in that um, sort of pop world, so to speak, that, that really excited me, you know? Um, I mean, apart from Michael Thompson, you know, he was on every, every record with Tim Pearce, um, you know, I didn't know at the time who they were, but every time I'd hear them do something or a guitar part or, or their sound in general was just like, holy moly, you know, who is this guy? Yep. Um, obviously, later on, as the internet came on, I found out who they were. Excuse me. Um, so, yeah, um, yeah, I can't really sort of give you a, a direct uh, answer to that. But That's cool. <laughs> it was all about the instrumental music for me. Yeah, yeah. I, it, it is... It is a bit like that, mate. We had some great guitar players. A big one for me was Diesel, the, the Johnny Diesel yeah. and the Johnny Diesel and the Injectors record. Yeah, um, yeah, was a, a big thing for me. He was kind of, yeah, he had his cool solos and stuff, and you know, he played for Barnsley, etc. But it's more his rhythm playing that really rubbed off on me. Yeah, um, I think he sort of had that, took that whole Malcolm Young thing and modernized yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, so much so that I was at a friend's place a couple of years ago. Yep. And um, he had that record playing, and I'm sitting there listening to it, and I'm thinking to myself, "Holy hell, I've ripped this guy off a lot in my rhythm playing." Um, <laughs> and he turns to me about thirty seconds later. He goes, "Man, if I didn't know any better, I'd swear that's you playing right now." And I was like, "I was just thinking that. That's how much I've ripped ripped off just his way of of, of playing the rhythm." Oh, um, mate, he's awesome. Yeah, uh, other Australian Amazing. guys. Yeah, I mean. Brett Garsad keeps keeps popping up as influences. I mean that, yeah. But um, like when he played on um, uh, Farnham, did a collaboration. I can't remember the female singer, but it was called the song was called Communication, and I remember Brett doing a solo on that. Holy moly! You know, it was just like wow. <laughs> you know, and that was probably you know apart from all the Farnham stuff, you know, that he played on. Yep. You know. That that definitely influenced me to sort of take on that approach to pop music and getting back to talking about you know um, playing in bands and how I got into bands. Um, that whole um, process was you know me auditioning for bands, covers bands, and then uh, making sure that you know I was I'd over prepare myself with sounds, parts. I'd learn the songs in different keys just in case they changed it on me. I'd learn how to solo over the songs, etc. But because I was so into um, the Satriani thing and 
um, all the you know neo at the time that when Brett Garth came along, I was like, man, this is the the approach I want to bring into covers land, you know. Yep. Uh, and that's what I did. I always wanted to incorporate the melodies and the and the melodic approach that Brett had, and you know, and add the technical side of things, but making it sound natural the way he did. You know, that to me, I mean, I still sort of go by that. Um, for me, it's all about the, the feel, the melodies, um, you know, and the touch. And then, you know, if it's called for, I'll I'll throw something in there, you know, in that moment, you know, if it, if it works musically, I'll do it, you know. But I'm not going to sit there and sort of try and play something for the sake of playing it that um, doesn't really sort of fit musically. Um, for me, it is important to try and connect to just, you know, you just your, your normal Joe Blow that's listening to music, you know, at a bar and, you know, appreciates guitar but doesn't know much about it, you know. They're the people that I sort of gauge off. I don't really sort of gauge off guitar players. I know my theory is too is that when, you know, if I have if I have a good night or a bad night, um, you know, I always gauge what the singer says to me after the gig because oh, yeah. they're always listening out for, for melodies and phrasing and, I mean that's they go off that, you know. Yep. So, you know, if I get if I get a compliment uh, of a singer, it's you're really on, really on blah blah blah. Then I would know I'd gauge it as well. You know, my phrasing, my melodic playing's been on point. You know, etc. etc. And vice versa, if they go, oh, you weren't really on it, then I you know, now just trying to show off. You know, there's probably guitar players in the audience. You know, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, we're all yeah. all prone to sort of. You know, trying to sort of prove yourself. You know, it's just Absolutely. ridiculous. I don't know why this is, but um, but yeah, you know, it's that that's what I sort of gauge off. But um, yeah, awesome. That makes Mate, sense. What what was your first uh, electric guitar? And tell us about your gear journey since. Yeah, the um, the first one was the Fender Music Master that my parents bought. Um, it's actually on my album cover. Um, I don't know if I've got any album any. I do have an album here somewhere, but um, I'm holding that guitar, um, you know, the Roland Cube. And then I sort of, as I was getting into Satriani, I um, I bought, oh, my parents bought me a Fender Japanese Strat with a Kayla uh, locking trim on it. Cool. So I could do all the dive bombs and stuff, which is yep. great. Um, and with that setup, I also had a PV Bandit with, um, I think it was a Turbo Overdrive, Boss Turbo Overdrive, yeah. um, and, you know, the CE2 chorus pedal. Um, what else did I have? Delay, Digital Delay, DD2 or 3, whatever it was called at the time. Um, and that, that rig lasted me a long time um, until I started getting into... Uh, the Paul Gilberts and the Vinnie Moores and stuff like that. Yep. Vinnie Moore was using um, Ibanez at the time and Dita was using the Ibanez at the time and, and Vinnie Moore was using Laney, Laney gear. So I went out and bought a Laney quad, bought an Ibanez RG750, um, which um, I regret selling. I'd love to get that back. <laughs> um, the... Uh, and that took me through a lot, a lot of the uh, the shreddy sort of playing. Uh, once I started getting back into the fusion side of things, um, 
I discovered Charles, uh, Charles Silly, guitars, got some guitars. I've been playing his guitars there for 22 years. Wow. Um, he, funny enough, he came into one of the shops that I was working at, Rockdale Lombardo Music, and he came in to try and some gear, and he had one of his guitars that he built, and I just saw it, because that's what I was after. I was after something classy that didn't sort of resemble an Ibanez. I was over the pointy thing. I wanted to get a little bit more sophisticated. I wanted to shake the shred thing off my back. Yep. Um, so doing the cover thing, you know, turning up with an Ibanez at the time wasn't a good thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, sort of had to um, try and discover something else. And Charles was the perfect solution to that. I, um, I asked him. And he was like, oh, I built my own guitars. Um, so I went and saw him. He, he built my first guitar, which, funny enough, was a, um, a Music Man Luke body that he copied yeah. onto like a, an Ibanez sort of shaped neck, a little bit thicker, not so paddle pop-ish stick-like. It was like there was some meat there. Um, and he built that. And I played that for a fair few years, you know. It wasn't a pointy guitar. It still had the shred factor about it. Still had a locking trim on it. And then he built me a um, a strat like um, guitar, which I still use. I use all these guitars still. I've got. I think I've got about 16, 15, 16 guitars of his yep. now. Um, wow. And yeah, I've got everything. Everything he makes from you know, like a jazz style guitar to country. I mean, everything. You know, that's what I use on the voice and. And, you know, the best guitars I've ever played. I mean, like I said, 22 years of, of playing them. I went to Ibanez there for two years. Yep. Um, that was an interesting time. Um, I played them and just pretty much realised that, you know, like you just can't beat something that's custom made for you, yeah. you know. Yep. And predominantly, that's what I was using the whole time. You know, I was using Charles' guitars on the show and um, – I've never had the opportunity to use the Ibanez, so I thought this is pointless, you know. Yeah, right. It's just I couldn't find a sound for it, you know. It was just wasn't the right guitar for me. So um, yeah, went back to Charles, and um, yeah, nice the rest one. is history. Well, funny, funnily, um, Charles is sending me a Stalkian model um, oh, to check sound? out. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've been wanting Please, to get. Babies. Yeah, mate, can you show us your Stalkian? I'm yep. going to take a quick bio break. I can still hear you. I will be back in 30 seconds as you show us around that guitar. Yeah, well, this is a prototype. It is a Stalkian. Um, on this particular model, I mean, so it's a rock maple neck, but as, as mentioned, it is a uh, prototype. Uh, it has Charles's pickups there, humbuckers, um, the Godot Bridge, I think it's the 510. Um, it's got a blower switch on it basically means that I can sort of set my volume at sort of half break grip style and then when I can go to lead, I'll just flick that up. It'll go straight to the output jack. Um, the, the great thing about these guitars is that uh, the playability, um, I'm not trying to sell a guitar here because I've, as mentioned, been playing these things for 22 years. And the thing that has always maybe gravitate the Charles guitars. The playability is just so effortless. <laughs> you don't even you think it plays itself, but the organic content of the guitars, the way Charles winds his pickups, 
it's just, as soon as you play the guitar, it's just, you hear the wood. It's just unbelievable. And the resonance and everything you get out of a guitar like this, um, just, I guarantee once you play one, you know, you look why you hadn't played earlier, you know, it's just, you know, I'm just passionate about these guitars and, and I know Charles personally, you know, and I have known him for 22 years and he's just, you know, an awesome guy, you know, he'll give you his heart, he'll, he'll make sure, you know, that, you know, every little detail is completed to perfection and I mean, if you find a defect on any of his guitars, I will give you my whole collection. That's how. Is that <laughs> that's right? That's how confident I am. Oh, mate, he is a stickler for finish. Yep. And you know, apart from the playability and the sound of the guitars, that is, just, it, he's just on another level. I mean, the people that have played his guitars will vouch for that. Um, there's a lot of my close friends that have bought the Stoukian, um, you know, and they're just they can't put it down. And it is the truth. Um, at this present time, we are working on a new model, one of my own my own models, which is called the Lyra. Um, nice. And that is going to be pretty much a Stalkian um, neck, playability, everything about the Stalkian, different body shape, um, pickup configurations, stuff like that. We've got some... Got some Great news coming up as far as um, some new stuff we're working on. So that'll be out shortly. Um, but, yeah, at, at the present time, we're still sort of ironing out the creases. And um, But, yeah, we're pretty much there, which is great. I'm very excited about that. <laughs> nice one. Mate, i got a feeling that when he does send me this uh, this Stalkian that I'm not going to want to send it back, that I'm going to have to come up yeah. with a cash route somehow. You'll be I'm... very blown away by the playability, I guarantee you, mate. Yeah. Yeah, I did play one um, down at the Melbourne Guitar Show uh, yeah. last year, and yeah. actually behind me, oh, not sure if you can see it. Is it on the wall there? There's one back there somewhere. That is a, a Warmoth guitar that I put together, Warmoth parts, okay. and yeah. I sent that down to Charles to do the the all the fret dressing and everything. Yeah. And when yeah. that came back, oh my god, man, just played like butter. And yeah. and I did notice that with um, the Stalkian that I played down at the, the show. I was really looking for a, a Strat guitar with a Floyd Rose yeah. recently, just because I know that if I break a string, I could put it back on, yeah. uh, on on a Floyd Rose. And yeah, yeah. actually, a, a friend just uh, brought this over for me to have a look at it's a an, an old valley arts whoops oh cool. yeah screen we want me yeah yeah uh, this oh, is wow. the, yeah. the seven eighths yeah i i used to have one uh a valley arts all through the 90s and 2000s yeah which somebody hassled me to sell and eventually did mm. mine was the full scale length one that's the seven eighths one um, oh, okay. the, the gibson scale yeah uh, needs a bit of work i'm considering Maybe doing that up a little to have as my, my Floyd Rose guitar and then just, um, yeah, put my cash together to get that Stalkian because... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Funnily enough, I was showing a student of mine last week um, some pictures of guitars on, on Charles's Facebook page and the very picture that I was showing him, he sent me about two minutes later of going, this is the guitar I'm sending you. And it was the sunburst, firebursty, quilted maple top one. So um, when he's done with that, 
He said he oh, said awesome. he, just, just to check out, and, but yeah, I think he's trying to bait me in there, and I think he may have me. <laughs> that's one thing. That's one thing he doesn't do, and I guarantee you, he mate Charles has always been the guy that sort of just says, you know what, you got to do what's right for you. You know, all you can do is play my guitars if you like them. You know, you get one, and and that's the thing. You know, it's 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 very organic the way he just like for those of you who are on social media, you know, he just. He, He's not even on there, you know. Whatever he's got his page, but he doesn't. He's not those guys that will come and buy my guitars. Or, mate, he's just pretty much just. Mate, he, this is what I do. If you like yep. it, great. If not, you know. And 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 it's funny because I have seen, you know, over my twenty-two year, I could say in the twenty-two year yeah. span with him, but I've seen so many players come into that showroom, you know, and play one guitar, and then you just don't see them for three years, you know, and then all of a sudden it's like. I'm back, you know, and I, I couldn't get it off my mind, and now I'm back to buy one, and it's it's always it's always the case, you know, with these guitars, you know, and he he just lets them play, he's not doesn't do the sale on them, you know, yeah. he just play them, and then if it works for you, great, if not, then you know, move on to the next. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Funnily enough, mate, um, just talking about Charles's guitars in the chat room, we've got Erwin Thomas who has a signature model, um, uh, Cilia guitar coming out real soon. Uh, which is very much like what I was saying, that the Strat style with the Floyd Rose on there. Yeah. Uh, oh, man. Charles yeah. might, might get two sales out of me. That's Stalky. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I, I played, I mean, I always, always bump into Erwin and Charles. Now, not now, probably now, because he's, he's moved back to Melbourne, but there was a time there where I was bumping into him uh, a little bit there. And and there was, I think it was just about to go on tour with the Suns and, and he had that guitar ready to go, and let's just play this. You know? And of course, you know, he's just got the best, the best ideas, you know, for a guitar. You know, you cannot beat him when it comes to tone, playing, you know, things that need to be on a guitar, things that don't need to be on a guitar. You know, when Erwin says something, you listen. That's the, <laughs> that's the that is the guitar bible. The first quote, you know. Yep. That, yeah. When man, when when God made man, it was like when God made Irwin, you know. These are the things that he put on his guitar, you know. You don't stuff with it, you know. But <laughs> he he's he's such a top like and just a, an incredible guitar player, like you know jaw dropping stuff, you know. And I've had some great conversations with him. He's just, he's just an inspiring guy to be around. And um, yeah, love the guy to death. But yeah. Well, I got to say, man, big big influence from on me. I, I mentioned before about um, Diesel, yeah. about my rhythm playing, listening to that record with the mate, and just going, "Holy crap!" I really ripped that yeah. guy off. Um, yeah. My lead playing around the time was very much based on on Owen's playing. Whose <laughs> yeah. wasn't? You know, it was just like I just because I, I was so into the shred, I, I could never do it. You know, I'm like, yeah. like what's what's this? What's this bending stuff? You know, what are you? Why are you bending those strings? You know. It's like, no, you don't need to do that. And of course, it should do. <laughs> oh, just the emotion he delivers, and just the natural ability to be musical. You know, it's just mind blowing. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Owen. Um, I know you're watching there, mate. Uh, oh, is he on here? He's, he's on here. He's watching. Yeah, he's he's, oh, he's commenting right now. God. Yeah, yeah. I take that back. I take everything back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Irwin, you mentioned during our chat that you were on a video backstage with toto somebody sent me a link to that recently i will shoot you that in a message and the the time in it somebody saw our chat and went this is what he's talking about uh, michael 
gear wise, you're an Axe Effects guy these days, yeah? Yep, sure am. That's yeah. um, that's pretty much my whole. Well, it's ninety percent of my rig. Um, I that's what I use on the show direct. I never use an amp. I did use an amp for season one. Um, I used my hundred watt plexi uh, into a two twelve Bogner cab that had um, heritage um, greenback um, and a vintage 30 in it I had two mics on it the cab was like 20 meters back into the studio and um you know it was good sound and everything wasn't as versatile as i wanted it to be but the other thing i was losing i was losing you know the interaction between guitar and speaker box i know there's little tricks that you can use you know you can put set up a little lamp and stuff but they didn't want any sound on stage you know in our pit so that was that was interesting because um the other thing that sort of annoyed me was that I had my sound in my ears and it was great. It sounded great. Everything was pumping. It sounded great, the band. And then obviously you hear it back through television. And then the EQ curve that I had, the monitor guy, tweaked for me, mm. obviously wasn't resembling what broadcast guy was doing at the front. And um, so I had to eliminate that, you know, where I could um, – just be in control of everything, and that's what I do with the Axe Effects. I pretty much uh, make sure that all platforms, so from monitor guy to uh, broadcast, um, have got me on a flat EQ, absolutely no EQ whatsoever, and then I EQ everything from my box because um, I know where I'm supposed to be sitting sonically in the mix. Um, I tweak all my sounds through my monitors here at home, I know where, where the frequencies um, supposed to be and where they shouldn't be. Um, so all my sounds are tweaked per song. So each song has probably about, you know, from two to four presets that I flick through, um, and they are all custom, uh, pretty much built for that particular song. Um, so it's really interesting when when guys hear the sound in, when you hear it in the mix, it sounds huge. And you see, hear it on its own. It's just like, where's the bottom end, you know? But I've got it tweaked nicely now, where I know the bass starts and where I should be finishing from that point. Where the, you know, and I know where I sit in, in the sonic spectrum there. So um, at this point, I've probably got about four and a half thousand patches that I've accumulated over the, the nine years. Wow. Uh, and every song you can think of, it, it's all there. It's all in the box. In my, yep. And the great thing about that is that if we ever do that song again, I'll just pull it out um, or anything that's similar. You know, I've all got it. I've got it filed nicely, so I know if I need an affected guitar, you know, I've go go into my guitar affected patches, and then I'll just there by song. And I'm thinking, oh, what does this one sound like? Pull them back in, um, play them. Go, yeah, that's the one I want. And then I'll tweak. You know, maybe a ten percent tweak there, and yep. um, and there's the sound. It saved me a lot of time, a lot of time. You know, especially when, um, you know, you, you got to learn the song, you got to pull the sound, yep. etc. Um, so yeah, that's that's definitely uh, helped a lot. And do you find yourself gravitating to any particular amp model a lot? Do you have have some favourites in there? Because there's a lot um, of them look, in there. The, Fried, the Friedmans are the are the best ones for me for the for the dirt stuff. Um, I do tweak a little bit in the cab section, um, depending on what I want to do. Um, I, I use a lot of the Fender stuff for the planes. 
Um, I do use a lot of the JCM800 model um, as well. Um, and the box, it's pretty much the, the basic ones, you know, that I do. If there's any, anything really heavy, um, we did a Marilyn Manson song last year, Beautiful People, and I think I used the Angle um, uh, Ant model in that, and that had a good sound to it. Used that with Charles, one of Charles' baritone guitars, tuned to, I think it was C or something, it's ridiculous, it was just like chunky, it's just great, you know, great to play. Uh, but yeah, apart from the run-of-the-mill stuff that you hear, you know, you know, whether it be rock or or pop, you know, it would always be between, you know, the Fender and the, the Marshalls and the Freemans, the boxes, yep. that's it, you know. And then I just change um, speaker cabs to suit. Yeah. Cool. There's actually a question, a really, really good question from Erwin. Um, yeah. Question for Michael for the Fractal Fence Sitters. Any tips for young guys pulling sounds with the Axe FX3? Yeah, look, the thing is, the thing I find with um, a lot of the younger guys is that they're, they're pretty much going on YouTube and they're trying to sort of reference off uh, guys that are pulling sounds in their bedroom, which is okay, you know. But what I'm finding, a lot of those guys have got so much top end and so much bottom end and, you know, in a real world, that wouldn't work, you know what I mean? Um the thing is, for me, you know, the, the only advice I could say to the young guys is that keep it simple. You know, start on the on a simple platform. You know, you've got if you want a good dirt sound, get a Freeman model. You know, with a with a you know a greenback quad twenty five watt thing or a two twelve version of it, and just wind the bottom end. You know, out of the cab, mate. I, I wind it up to about you know about a hundred hertz. Some 120 sometimes, you know, yep. to just to get rid of that bottom end. Yep. Um, and you know, don't overcompensate with bottom end because bottom end doesn't necessarily mean big. You know, you've got to learn to if you're playing within a band or you're doing a recording, just be be aware of where the bass frequencies are. You know, where your guitar should be sitting. You know, if anything starts sounding muddy, it's normally in the bottom end, mm-hmm. and it's more than likely that you know you got too much bottom end on there. You know, and and for me, that's um, that's important. You know, oh, going on the voice. You know, I sort of had that mentality. I do a lot of recording at home, so the great thing about the voice band is that um, a lot of the guys, all of the guys in the band, are producers at home in their own studio. So we know where we're supposed to sit. You know, uh, sonically in the mix. So that eliminates anything that um, that has to be done post. You know what I mean? Um, so if you listen to what we're doing from the word go, um, and you go in the truck to hear it back, it, it just sits, sits like a glove, you know, it's, it's all intertwined beautifully. Um, uh, there's nothing that's fighting, uh, in there. Uh, so, you know, my advice to the young guys as well is to do a lot of recording at home. Um, not just the one style, you know what I mean? Just venture into you know, various styles to, to see, you know, how certain things fit sonically because it'll teach you about, um, you know, even when you're writing your own music, it'll teach you to um, bring those elements back into your own music, you know, not so much the style but the approach, you know, um, and learning to use these ones, you know. It's, it's, it's so important. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's pretty much the, the biggest advice that I could give is just keep it simple. 
you know, because especially on the fractal stuff, but it's not, you don't have to do anything. You pull up the amp, you know, the only thing I do is pull out the bottom end and, you know, then if I want to get into the fine detail, like, for example, if I, um, if I pull up a Fender amp, right, for example, like a Fender Twin, right, and I want it to sound like a 335 style and I don't have that guitar, you know, hmm. I'll start going into the um, post-EQ section of the amp section and I'll, and I'll wind out some bottom end and I'll start peaking it to make it sound just a little bit honky so I can use the neck pickup. Um, so that way um, I'm, I'm shaping the amp to sound like that particular sound on the record. So that, that's what I do. You know, and I've learned to do it pretty quick. I can recognize a certain sound or a guitar. Um, if I don't have that particular guitar, I'll shape the amp to, to suit. I won't look for the amp, right, because that takes too long. I'll just shape the amp. Cool. To... To, to create that particular sound. I do it all the time, all the time. Yeah. You know, I'll, sh I'll shape a, like a Fender Twin to sound like a Vox, you know what I mean? Yep. And I might use, you know, the Vox, you know, the, the, the 212 Vox cab with it and all of a sudden it's sounding quite Voxy without sounding, um, just making it sound unique at the same time. So I do a lot of that, a lot of that. A lot of my sounds are tweaking the actual amp. Yeah. Nice one, nice one. Yeah. There, was, there was a quest, question there from Jimmy um, yeah. uh, asking how you found the development from using an Axe 1 to the Axe 3. Did you start out using the Axe 1 or did you jump I on later? I used the Axe 1. I used the, um, the Axe. I started on Axe, Axe FX 2, which was in 2013. Um, I actually inquired about it 2012 and they, they got into the country by season 2. Um, and there, no one was using it except for Peter Northcote. Me and Pete were the only guys in Australia that were using them at the time, um, and I think we were the only guys that were using them. Um, and I had um, a few conversations with Pete, what he thought about it, um, and we, I sort of took it away. And, my, and the way I sort of experimented and sort of put it to the test was previous year on The Voice um, – the, what we normally do at the start of the season, we do a whole bunch of backing tracks that we play within the blind auditions so the contestant can actually practice to that backing track so it sounds oh, cool. exactly the way they're going to hear it on set. Yep. Okay, we're actually playing it live. Now, I had those backing tracks and I had all my charts and I went back to those backing tracks and without listening to the actual backing track, I pulled up the the reference uh, MP3, which is the original track by the artist. And I pulled the sound to that and I thought, gee, this sounds identical. It sounds nice. I, this is the way I sort of remember. So then what I did was I, I played the sound. I put it into the track and I'd sort of panned. I think I was panned left at the time from the back of the track and I, and I put this one on the right. So I could sort of pan to see which one sounded and I just it blew me away that the axe effects just left it for dead, like wow. my real amp for dead in the sense, not tonally, like it had the same tone and everything, the richness. It was just the fact that it sat in the mix just perfectly, you know? Cool, cool. It, that was the element for me. That was the game changer. So I was on axe effects too from the word go. It didn't have scene options on there. Uh, the way I work my patches is really unorthodox compared to 
any other player. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure yeah, yeah. I'm the only guy that's doing this sort of approach mm-hmm. where because um, uh, I didn't have scenes and you know there was a little bit of lag on on the patch changes back in those days that I started using um, the two amp setup where I could fade into um, my dirt into a fender ramp, vice versa. Oh, cool. um, so that, and I still apply that um, that way of thinking to these patches. That even though I've got scenes, I don't, I never use them. I just use all the fades. And now on the Axe Three, um, you've got so many chains that you can, you can, you know, put a whole bunch of amps <laughs> just keep fading into, you know, yeah, with right. different expressions. And the great thing for me too with the with the expression pedal is that, especially when you're on set and you know cameras are rolling and stuff, it's quite dark there. So to change patches, to lift your foot and to sort of change a patch, can be um, a little daunting, believe it or not, because you're sort of trying to look at the chart and you sort of, you don't you want to be making sure you're pressing the right button. You know you don't want to be going from from you know dirty to a clean. You want to be going from dirty to dirty. So I've got it all set to an expression pedal where I just keep my foot on the accelerator, so to speak, and then yep. you know if I need to go to the next section, I'll just expression pedal down and then away I go. You know, and it's just straight into. And I do that a lot with my, you know, if I have to take an outro solo or um, if things have to poke out, you know, I'll have a totally different amp set up, you know, different delay, different EQ, and it'll just fade straight into there without any glitches. It'd be just beautiful transition straight into there. Very cool. Yeah. So, Michael, I have avoided jumping straight into talking about the voice because I, I yeah. knew that that would be a, a whole can of worms in itself and wanted to sort of lead up to that but yeah. um, I think we've covered enough of your, your early days yeah. and, we've, and we've sort of segued into it by talking about the Axe yeah. effects. I've got a little yeah. clip here of uh, some selected moments of you guys, uh, you playing on The Voice. Oh, cool. I'm going to play yeah. that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my jug on and make another coffee while that's playing. Oh, okay. <laughs> do you, you want to uh, – I'm not sure if this is long enough, but my kitchen's like right there, so I'll probably get half yeah, of the yeah, time. No just, so I'm going to play this little clip, mate, and then we can okay. uh, have a bit of a chat about The Voice, huh? Okay, cool. Okay, mate, here we go. So just listening to that in my cans, like as I said, I was just making yeah. a coffee right beside me there. 
what's your bass player using? Because the consistency in the bass is really apparent in my cans just listening to that then. I know this is all about guitar, but um, I guess for TV, that consistency is a big thing. You don't want to be sending oh, yeah. your, um, well, I guess not front of house guy, but your whoever's doing the, the broadcast mix, they want to hear consistency so that from song oh, yeah. to song, it's not a case of, oh, Jesus, that's a bit more on this or that. And I take it those snippets were all from different episodes. So absolutely, um, yeah. kudos yeah, to your bass player for having that consistency. I guess that's yeah. where the axe effects would, would fall in for you as well. Well, that's, that's exactly it. You know, it is important to make sure that the, well, for starters, your volume consistency, you know, you're not changing through through patches and everything's, you know, uneven and stuff like that. Um, but we've all got our, our stuff down and that's important. You know, you know, even Andy on drums, he's he's all the electric stuff that he does, all the electronics um, that he uses on the show, you know, he's all got them all tweaked beautifully, you know, volume-wise and everything just you know, just fits nicely, you know, as I, as I said before. Um, Joel, same thing, you know, he, he switches from playing Moog to, you know, upright um, and, um, you know, obviously electric bass and stuff, and he's got a whole bunch of basses that he uses. Um, that, But he's, his levels are always consistent. You know, if if he if he picks up his half note and it's a little bit lower than his active bass, you know, he's got stuff worked out that, you know, boost the signal to make sure everything is at, you know, at the right um, dB. Uh, and then the same goes with our keyboard players. And Sofo does programming on the show. Um, amazing keyboard player and, and programmer. Uh, you know, all his levels and Scott Applin, you know, he, he, you know, they all do their job great. And the great thing about it is you there's never a moment, you know, where someone gets the nod and says, you know, hey, look, your volume's all over the shop, you know, can we fix that up? You know, that's a rarity you know, on the show. Um, apart from everyone paying each other out on the show, uh, that, that's, a whole new, that's a whole new episode there. Yeah, yeah really. cool. Yeah. Oh, my goodness, I could go into some stories. Oh, yeah, really? Yeah, funny, funny moments. Oh, a yeah. bunch of great guys on the, yeah. on, on the, in the band. and We have a great time, you know. So, so really Michael, time. how did you actually get the gig Playing on there. I'm just going to pour my coffee, which will take me 10 seconds uh, while you start telling us that. But how did you actually score the, the gig? Yeah, yeah. So, well, the, the gig, I um, I had been doing a fair bit of touring with our musical director, Scott Applin, um, and a lot of session work for him. He, he did a lot of the ABC Kids records, and uh, we just had a great relationship. And he got offered the gig as musical director, and he called me up. Um, I'll never forget it. It was probably around... July, he sort of hinted that there was something coming. It was big and we don't have a tour. And I thought, okay. And I sort of threw it at him and I said, look, it's this voice thing that's going on in, the Amer in America. And he goes, yeah, it is. He goes, you know, it's going to happen. Do you want to do it? And, you know, the first answer you would expect is yes. But I said, look, you know, to be quite honest with you, it's not my gig. I don't feel confident doing something like that. Um, and I actually knocked it back. Wow. And yeah, I knocked it back because I thought I, I had done a couple of um, uh, Australian Idol gigs with Chris Gonzalez and Rex Go when they do their big supergroups night. And that freaked me out. You know, I was, I, was, I was doing a lot of one song performances on Sunrise and that for various artists. You know, I did a lot of that. And, you know, I just psyched myself up to do the one song. It's fine. You know, you're out of there. But to be consistent over 
you know, a number of amount of songs. That freaked me out. You know, and obviously the monkey on your back saying, you know, what if you stuff up? You can't stuff this up. So the easy option for me was to say no to it, you know. Yeah, right. And I just released my album as well. So I wanted to concentrate on that. And Scotty being Scotty, um, pretty much uh, took it as a no. And then the next day I'd spoken to him again. I, was, I called him up and we went on the subject again. And he was like, you sure you don't want to do it? I was like, yeah, look, man, I'm, I'm pretty – by the end of the conversation, he convinced me to do it. Um, but this went on for three months, and I kept ringing up after and just going, you know what, dude, nah, it's not for me. It's not me. I'm not the right guy for the job. And it, it, seriously, it went for three months, and it got to the point where he called me. I'll never forget the last conversation. And he was like, look, mate, they're, they're issuing contracts. You know, if you're out, I need to know now. If you're in, I need to know because I need to put your name on the contract. They're going out tomorrow or the next day or whatever it was. So he was like, you may do it. You're going to regret it if you don't do it. And I was like, oh, man. But yeah, he convinced me to do it. And, you know, and I was like, and then the next day I rang him up. I said, you know what, dude? No, I don't want to do it. No, I'm out. 100%. I'm oh, out. I'm man. out. And, of course, Scotty was like, too late, man. Contract's done. They're coming out. But it was a lie because the contracts weren't coming out for another couple of weeks. He just wanted me to commit. All right? So, you know, and I'm very grateful for him for doing that. And I finally said yes, and, and that was it, you know. And then the contracts came out a couple of weeks later. And I, honest to God, I just didn't. I didn't sleep. I don't think I slept for about four months leading up to the to the show because I was so freaked out about it. Not, it, and, and I think it was more the element of not knowing what knowing not not knowing. Oh, it's not coming out. I need another coffee. Um, you can go and make one if you want, man. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. It's all good, mate. Well, I mean, the element of not knowing what was, you know, incorporated into the show. So yep. it was sort of freak. I was freaking out about that. Um, so once we started getting the bulk of the songs coming in, and this is initially just for the for the turning of the chairs, so the blind auditions. In that first season, I think we had about 155 songs come in, or about 150 songs come in, and mate, they were coming in thick and fast, you know. And I was freaking out. I was like, "Are you kidding me?" You know, wow. no, this is freaking me out. So. I did not sleep. I think the first year we had a good – we had probably about five weeks, five, four weeks to, to learn all the songs. So I didn't sleep. I honestly did not sleep. I would work. I would get up at 7. I'd, I'd go through to about 3 a.m. and I'd get back up at 7. And I did that constantly for the five weeks until I was confident, you know, of the songs. And I just kept going over the songs, kept going over, pulling my sounds. And it, it really freaked me out. Um even up to the point when we finished recording the backing tracks, yeah. right, for the contestants, the practice too. So I'd learnt the songs. We went into the studio. We spent four or five days in the studio at that point to record the backing tracks. Even after we finished those backing tracks, I turned around to Scott and I said, mate, I'm out. I can't handle this. This is really? too full on for me. Yeah. And he's like, mate, you can't. You've signed a contract. You're in. <laughs> and, of course, we'd have a bit of a laugh and I'd be like, oh, man, get me out of here. You know, so, oh, oh, yeah, it was just like, I'll, I'll never forget the first song, and it was a Wolf Mother song, the whole series, you know, the very first song. Um, it, I just, I could feel my heart coming out of my mouth, you know. It was just, 
but it was a good feeling because, you know, it was like, great, I nailed that. You know, I've got another 149 to go now, you know. And it was great, you know, because I sort of composed myself. Um, it was very – it was so challenging, mate. It was so challenging. I bet, I bet. I mean, even these days, you know, you never get used to the, the fact that when the cameras are rolling, you still get that adrenaline rush. You just can't shake that, you know. But the thing you do learn to do is to control it, you know. Where in the early days, it's just like you're freaking out. You just play, you know. You play safe. Where these days, you know, I just, I'm just going for things and whatever, you know. Yep. It, it is what it is. Yep. So uh, that element of adrenaline and freaking out, um, the, well, the freaking out part has sort of gone, but you're still that adrenaline rush, man. It never stops, eh? you know. And the, just the, the, the sheer fact of the, uh, you know, the amount of concentration you have to put to, towards this gig and such long days, you know, that people are not, not aware of, you know, um, it's, hey, you've got to be always focused, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a hard gig to stay focused, I'll put it that way. Have you, have you ever had a, a fuck-up, like, in a, in a live, you know, you're going live to air and you've just got, oh, man, I just blew that one. Have, have you had some of those? Well, man, you know, funny enough, in, in nine years of doing the show, there's never – there's only been one actual clunker chord that I hit, which was in the live show, yep. and that was my fault. Every every point, every every year, and every song, um, apart from this particular song, has always been. I've been very very um, clean in the sense of just playing the parts and not worrying about any mistakes. I mean, ultimately, it's a minute and a half, so you just got to focus for a minute and a half and not sure. fuck it, basically. You know. Yep. Yep. So um, the um, the song, <laughs> I still remember it. And Scott, <laughs> it was actually something by the Beatles, right? And I played that song a million times. You know, I used to play the song every Thursdays with a good friend of mine, Glenn Cunningham, who's an amazing singer. Um, we used to play this uh, song um, religiously every week, and I loved it. And we sort of did a different version of it. Um, but anyway, regardless, this particular, I was so confident, and they pushed the band forward, and we're at the front, and I was that confident. I was dancing around like a clown, you know, and just not concentrating too hard. Um, but and I was sort of pulling faces to the guys, going, "Come on, guys, listen up," you know. And of course, you know, I went to hit the chord that I thought it was, and it was like totally not the chord. It was that obvious. It was just like someone had just hit the gong right in the middle, you know. It was bad. And, of course, I've just gone, oh, just corrected myself, just played it cool, just played, of course, at the end of it, because we've got talkback mics and that, and Scotty's like, who the hell was that? I was like, mate, it wasn't me. <laughs> it wasn't me. <laughs> and they're like, it was you, man, it was you. And we all had a laugh, laugh about it. But I do remember a lot of guys on Facebook, you know, because I used to put my camera there live and, they go, what happened in that song? And I'd be like, mate, it's the keyboard player. Yeah, keyboard player stuffed it. <laughs> mate, the keyboard player. <laughs> Pass the buck. Mate, oh, you, you said about learning so many songs. Um, do you have a particular method that you use? Do you just have everything just playing on repeat constantly? Um, what, what's your method to learning so many songs? Man, you know, I think the formula of uh, noticing formulas within songs yeah. uh, becomes – very clear when you've done so many songs, you know. Um, there is a formula of the way, you know, Scotty cuts the songs to 
match the one minute 30 you know you'll do like eight bars of a verse and then you'll do like maybe four bars of the first chorus four bars of a bridge and then you know eight to 16 bars from end of outro chorus um so the form is there we've got charts in front of us um once i listen to the song and i pull my sound and try to pull the sound as i'm pulling the sound i'm learning the part by ear and just go yeah that sounds pretty close then i'll pull up my chart and then if um the arranger hasn't uh, written the actual line down i will write it where it's supposed to be played um that way i know when it gets to that bar i don't read the dots i basically remember the line so it gets to that point i play the line um but writing it down helps me understand you know what needs to be played at that moment um but look in all honesty if i was depending on what's involved in the song if it's a full rock song like bohemian rhapsody for example um, when I first, like, we've played that a few times, you know, over the years, um, and, you know, the first time I had to learn it, you know, it took a little bit of finessing to, to, to get it to that point where I was comfortable. Um, so it, it varies, you know, your, your typical pop song would probably take me, you know, 10 minutes, you know, per 90 minute, uh, 90 second cut. Um, and that's pulling the sound and annotating the chart and, moving on to the next song, you know. So it's a quick process at that point. Um, it's only when I get given acoustic finger-picking stuff, you know, things that I'm not really confident in, and that's the stuff I have to work on. Yep. So if I get a song that's got a, a finger-picking thing, I'll probably spend an hour, maybe two hours, just finessing it, getting it right feel, feel for me. Um, and then I'll continue practicing it up until the point of when we played on the show. You know, and just before we play it, I'll be warming up to it, and then you know, and I'll play it. You know, so it's so it sounds like I'm, you know, you know, at ease and relaxed, which I'm not never am. <laughs> those bloody acoustic songs drives me nuts. What's the hardest song that you've had to play? Um, on acoustic or just oh, just, just in general. What what song are you just going? Oh man, this song. Song. There was a song in season two called the Better One song, um, and it was by what was that guy's name? He was out there for a, for a bit. Great song. It was an acoustic thing. It was like a, a folky sort of thing. And, but the tempo changes and the click, oh, my God. It was it was unbelievable. So it would really? be like, you know, you'd start the song, at, you know, it would be there, and then it'd do these ones, you know. You know and then oh, you sort wow. of, you've got to keep for like a bar that it sort of slowed down and there were counts going one, two, you know, three, four in my ears. I'd be like, what the hell is this? So that was just like, oh my God. I'd always bring that up. You know, it's probably one of the hardest things to play to. Yep. Um, but, you know, knock on wood, it was it was flawless on my end and I was really, really relieved once that was over. But the problem was is that once we did that in the blinds, they decided to bring back... Um, in the live show, right, their audition song. So that came up again, but this time it was on live television. So, but the weird thing about that is that because it's live television, you've got to pick up the, you've got no time to warm into it. So you had, I remember doing Sunday Bloody Sunday by U2, which was, you know, the full guitar thing. And I literally had to put the guitar, put the acoustic, and I just couldn't, you know, and, you know, I was lucky. I, I fluked it again and, and you know, I was I was I actually played but played it in the blinds, which is really relieved about. Oh, cool. I thought, never, man. 
<laughs> so you mentioned having having a click in your in your in ears. Um, so you, you're playing most songs to a click then? Yeah, everything's to click. Yeah. Um, that because they use uh, time code for lighting. Um, every second counts on TV. It just yeah. mate, if we if we won't use a click, you know, especially in the ballads, they all tend to sort of slow down. You know, so you know, a ninety second song becomes you know three minutes. Yep. So that, that it's really important that every second is accounted for, and um, yeah, we're not sort of slowing things down and that. And it's and it's really important for the contestant to make sure uh, that we're playing at the same tempo. Everything's identical every time. You know, there can't there, there's no room for excuses later. You know what I mean? So if the contestant doesn't quite sing the song as well as they have, they have no excuse. Yeah. The song is being played exactly the same. You know, every time. And, so, and do you have yeah. um, spoken word cues going in there as well? Only when there's like um, for the intro, there's a four four count, um, and then if there's any amount of bars that have just like a little bit, bit ambient, where um, there could be four bars of just one note of a keyboard, you know, and you're just like, you know, this click's still going, you can count the bars, but sometimes it's really easy to switch off, you know, so. Scott might put a an extra count there, as a, a four count leading into the next section, to just to cue us to make sure we don't miss that, you know, cool. or anything that's a little bit tricky. A lot of the theatre stuff, a lot of the musical pieces that we do are all to click, and the click is just ridiculous. They are like this, you know, uh, that's funny. It's funny. You would never know it when listening to it, you know, the final product. But oh, mate, what goes on in our ears is just a, it's just a, you know. It's so, a rocking boat. Yeah. Being that you're playing to click, do you also have program changes going to your axe effects to, to do all no, the switching? That, no, I'll do, no, do that. Um, yeah, we can't because there has been times where the contestant um, has missed their cue. Um, it's only happened, like, funny enough, you know, nine years, it's only happened probably about four or five times where a contestant has actually missed their cue to come in. And what happens then is Scott while he's playing and while we're playing, we keep going. Yep. We keep going. We just follow the chart. The, yep. the whole thing is that we never derail from the chart, right? If they miss their cue, unless Scotty yells it out and says, gets on the talkback button and says, guys, intro, intro, vamp intro, and we keep going the intro. And then he'll, while all this is going, he's contacting Doug in the truck, Doug Brady, who, mind you, is – an absolute legend, you know. He um, he recorded Whispering Jack. Yeah, yeah. And, but um, he he'll get the call from Scotty. He'll stop the click. Everything's still recording. Yep. As, as per usual, we just play without the click at this point, and Scotty will go, okay, one, two, three, four, and the verse. This happens all in a matter of like three seconds, right? Yep. So it's really quick. Scotty's on it really quick. It's like, yep. guys, man, be trade, Doug, stop click, bang. Okay, one, two, three, four, and we go into the verse. Nice. And that's it. And then the, the contestant will pick up on it. Yeah. Wow. Sounds like you guys have really got it down then, huh? Because yeah, oh, yeah, that's accidents do happen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, 100%. You know. Especially, on, you know, camera. And once, a, yeah, once the cameras are rolling, mate, people freak out. I mean, you know, we freak out as a band. You know? <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, not all, it's not all smooth sailing, put it that way. So, mate, i, I got to confess, I, I, I don't really watch – the voice and all those kinds of the shows uh, as I've gotten older, but I used to watch a lot of them when um, when I was a kid. They used to have you know like all your, your talent shows, new faces, all that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And I noticed that 
you know, you'd have these songs that yep. were just real standards that everyone would use in those shows. Send in the clowns and wind beneath my wings. You know, I'm talking back in the in the eighties, uh, early eighties, even late seventies, and it was just like, man, everyone's doing the same songs. What song are you sick to death of that keeps coming up that? That you're just like, oh man, if I never have to play this song again, <laughs> it'd be too soon. Is there one that springs oh, to mind? Far out. That's a good question. Um, what have we played? Um, I mean, there's a lot of songs that keep coming up. A lot of songs that keep coming up. Um, you know what? No, there's not one that springs to mind, to be quite honest with you, because there's so many songs. Yeah. You forget about the ones that keep popping up. And in all honesty, you know, once the season's over, I can't even remember what I played last week. I can't even remember what the – yeah. Like it's, you just start – you go into that frame of mind where you just concentrate on the next bunch of songs, you know. Yeah. It's like if you told me who won la- – I do know who won last year, Diana Rubis. Um, but if you told me who won the year before that, I'd be, I'd be trying to think, you know, because like, you're so focused in that moment. But once the next season kicks in, man, you just forget about everything else, you know. Yeah. Um, and I cannot remember – Oh, yeah, I know this one piano song that keeps coming up every yeah. year. It's called Gravity, you know, that a lot of singers love singing over. And that is guaranteed every year, you know. So, But I'm not on that song, so it doesn't bother me. <laughs> okay, not, not the John Mayer tune, which would be guitar. No, not, no. not Gravity. It's, it's um, what's her name? So I tip my tongue. Um, Sarah something. I can't remember. It's a beautiful song. It's a great song. But, yeah, that keeps coming up every year. Um Guitar songs, I don't know what the, I just can't remember ones that keep coming up. But yeah, never mind. I'll let you know when it when it happens next okay. year. Okay. Next season. Yeah. Um, mate, you, you mentioned about um, recording all your stuff at home, and I can see you got a nice little home studio set up there. Yep. What What are you running? Uh, mate, I'm pretty simple. Just a couple of Genelex, um, just a couple of screens behind me. That's about it. I'm running a a Fireface Face um, 410, I think it's the 410, is it? Um, but uh, running that, you know, acoustic, I have to record acoustics. So I'll just, I've got a nice Rhodes NT2 that I use. Mm-hmm. I've had that for the last 25 years. Yep. Um, a bunch of mics. Um, my amp that I use around town. So when I'm doing gigs around town, I don't, I don't go direct. Okay. Um, I've got a deal with Fender. I'm endorsing the new Tone Master amps. They're incredible amp. Nice. Most of my videos are with the Tone Master from the direct out of that. Um, I'm just running into my AX8 into the front of the amplifier um, and then direct out into my sound card. It's just a great sound. I love it. Um, it's definitely me when it comes to playing the Fusion stuff. I love the sound. It's quite dynamic under the fingers. Um and yeah, I pretty much stick to that, and I use that around town. So it's basically a Fender Twin, uh, but you know, only weighs it about I think about eight kilos. It's ridiculous, so light. Yeah, yeah. right. Okay, I, was, I saw one of those at, at the local music store. Yeah. I have to check that out. Yeah, and, yeah, amazing. Um, I was just glancing at the um, at the, the comments. So forgive me if you just answered this before, but no, what, you're right. what what door are you using? What what workstation? Uh, Logic. Okay. Is that what you're talking about? Yep. Program? Yep. Yeah, yep. using Logic. Um, yeah, pretty basic setup. There's a bunch of plugins in there. Um, 
It's, it's, I, I run a basic, very basic setup uh, here because I mean, the majority of sessions that I do are basically just guitar, so I don't have to worry about anything else as long as I've got that sorted. Um, yeah, don't worry about. I don't do vocals. I don't do any of that stuff. Yep. Yeah. And do you get people um, sending you songs to do sessions on? Um, you're available. Yeah, session yeah, work from home, yeah. Time. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, around the world, you know, doing it all the time. Um, but yeah, that's that's my thing. That's that's part of my income. Yep. Um, I love doing it, you know, and I don't have to leave home, which is great. And how do people get in touch with you if they want to um, get you playing on their songs? I oh, just on, via my website, you know, michaeldolchimusic.com. Uh, um, hit me up as a contact form there, and yeah, easy. Or Facebook or Instagram. Yep. Just type my name in, you'll see it. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, I, I got to say, just as as I said, I was glancing at the um, at the chat there, and we had some nice words yeah. to say about Erwin. I don't think you realised he was in the chat. He's just th- throwing some nice words back at you, mate, saying this guy oh, is a legend. monster. Cats really need to check out Michael's albums. His tone, touch, and stream of ideas are endless. Plus, he's a sweetheart. A must to hit his masterclass as well. One of our country's most valued players. There are no flukes with this guy. There you uh, go, mate. What a I don't, I don't know whether to cry or be happy about that. <laughs> he's a legend, mate. He's, he's just a beautiful guy. I mean, Jesus, that's it. I retire. You know, hearing that from Irwin. Yeah. That's it. I'm done. See you later, guys. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. There no, was. Just, well, yeah. that, is, that is some nice words, isn't it? So, yeah. yeah. Mate, uh, when you posted on Facebook earlier this morning that you were coming on, uh, there was a question from Joel Burton asking about your staccato lines. <laughs> you laugh like that's uh, a new joke. I, I want to see if he's. I want to see if he's on here at the moment. If he's here, if he's not, I'm going to text him now because I'm not going to answer this until he's on. Uh, text him, mate. Okay, so while you're yeah. doing that, uh, and before he does say um, that he is on, I just want to ask you. You did mention uh, about your early days having your six or so hour of practice. Do you have a routine of practicing? Because, man, you're one of those guys that has that really fluid legato thing going on, uh, and it's something I'd like to improve in my own playing. Oh, thanks, mate. I appreciate that. Um, uh, look, the thing is, is that obviously that's that's all come from Brett, you know, just inspired by Brett and Dieter Kleeman. Um, I, I, I was practicing a lot back in the days and, you know, working on my technique, and, you know, which I chucked out the window there for a good 10 years and then. Um, I remember doing a run of promo stuff with Anthony Kalia and Chris Kanzelis asked me to join him on acoustic um, guitar. Chris is an incredible player, very close friend of mine. And at that point, I'd sort of put all my technical sort of playing aside. And I remember jamming in the hotel room. Chris had bought this little backing track. Um, it was almost one, what was it, one of those core things? I, I can't remember what it was called, play along sort of things that had effects. So he had this cable that went into the into a TV so he could jam through the TV in the hotel room. Cool. Yeah, it all worked out. He's like, come to my room, man, we'll have a jam. And, and he put on some of this funky sort of stuff and was just playing around. And I just felt comfortable playing that style, you know, the legato style in front of him. But because when the 90s kicked in with the whole grunge thing, I was shake, trying to shake that off my, off my back because no one wanted a shredder. You know, in the band, so I totally changed my playing, you know, to just pure melodies, and that was it, you know. So 
I started playing and Chris was just like, what, dude, like, why don't you play like that live? You know, why, why, and I, and I explained to him and said, you know, I was a bit paranoid about it. He's like, mate, you've got to, you've got to go back to this. You have to show people what you're doing here, you know. And that inspired me just hearing those, um, hearing those words from him. Um, I thought, you know what, he's right. I've just got to stick to what I do. And then I just started working on it again and, um, and brought it back into my plane, which I'm glad I did, you know, because it was a very, it's a very natural thing for me to do. Um, and I still practice. Man, I get up really early. Not, I didn't get up early today, actually. <laughs> I had a good sleep in. Um, but look, majority of the time I'm up at 5 a.m. Uh, late at 6 a.m. And I'll do, I'll do two hours before the kids get up. I've got three beautiful children and a, and a beautiful wife that supports me endlessly. Um, so I will do my two hours and I just work on my thing, you know, like just different ways to get to the next chord, um, just, you know, ways of getting around the fretboard. I, I get excited about that, you know, just bringing yep. new stuff to my plane. Uh, and like I said, I do that every day. Um, yeah, but, uh, yeah, I'm at, I've... I would never stop practicing, you know. I call it uh, maintenance. Um, it's great to maintain what I have. Um, so, yeah, and I enjoy doing it, I suppose, yeah. But but Joel just sent me a message back. He's saying he's watching. He is, So let's yeah. get back to that question. And, yeah, yeah, and he also just, just dropped the uh, question of tell us about your attention. Yeah. <laughs> so I take it some right. in-jokes going let here. Me, let me paint the picture here, right, because this is – this is deeper than just answering this question, okay. right? Okay, so, you know, six months of the year, you know, I'm, we're tied down to each other and, you know, we're basically living, you know, on set. You know, we're, we spend the majority of our lives on set, you know, and we're only a couple of feet away from each other and, you know, we've got talkback mics and we're always, we're always paying each other out. You know, if someone makes a mistake in the song, in the rehearsal, you know, of course, it's just next level of, oh, my God. It all sort of comes into play, right? But then we've got the photoshopping, you know, where we pay each other pay each other out, where we grab a certain picture off the net and we stick somebody, one of the band members' heads on it, and it's just, it's constant, constant paying out, okay? So, and we're just, and the, the laughs and the, the constant joking around, I'm just thinking of some of the stuff that happened this season. It's just gold, some of the photoshops. Um, but, okay, so there was this song called Attention, you know, and Chris Sebastian sang it. And um, there's this particular, um, it's a real staccato line that happens within the song, right? It, um, and I sort of used the two amps set up in that. It's actually really cool in your ears. It sounds like two guys are playing off each other. Yep. And that's the way it is on the record, but um, I do a lot of that two-amp thing where it sort of plays like this and you get the stereo, um, which is cool. But anyhow, we were in rehearsal, and um, this particular staccato thing, to, to get it consistent, you know, not as easy as people think, right? So there are some tricks that I do. One of them um, is putting a bit of foam under the saddles. Yep. Right near the bridge, right? So I don't have to rely on my palm muting to create the consistency through the, the arpeggios of the strings. Um, and I put that on the on the actual intro, and then I slide it off 
when I go into the next section. Yep. Right? And then it sort of gets into this funky thing and I took like an outro solo at the end. Um, so this particular um, staccato thing, um, I had Adam Sofa, the programmer, you know, yell out. It's like, oh, mate, it's not staccato enough, you know. Like, dude, you, you're playing it too legato. And, they, and, of course, they start, you know, taking the piss, you know, and they're just like, the legato, you know, because they know it's a legato package. So it becomes this thing, right? And, of course, you know, when start, someone starts mentioning, even in, in, in jest or they're joking, you start getting this paranoia kicking in. You're just like, maybe I'm not, you know, maybe I'm not playing it staccato enough. So, of course, I get the reference from listening. You know, I think it's right, you know. And then you play it and then and everyone would be laughing because they know you're, you're paranoid now and they're trying to sort of put up your game, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I've got this monkey on my back, you know, knowing that I have to perform this thing flawlessly, you know, knock on wood, it was, it was a great take um, and I was pretty happy with it. But leading to the record and, and the filming, right, so we've just finished the previous song. So I've, I've, um, we're just about to go into the launch to the next song and I'm like, where's the phone? <laughs> I was like, where's the phone? Right? And I could just see Joel. Joel's just sitting there right next to me. Right, he's taking the foam off me because he knows I'm, fr I'm freaking out already because I have to play the part. So just to make it even more interesting, he's taken the foam and he's hidden it. I said, where's the foam? Where's the foam? I can't play this song without the foam. Give me the foam. And, of course, he's like, I've got to put him out of his misery. So he shows me the foam. I put it straight into the guitar. And at this point, I'm already on edge, you know, because I've been looking for this foam. Oh. I was like, calm down, okay, Michael, calm yourself down, calm it down, you know. And we launch into it, and you know, lucky for me, you know, it was a good take. So, um, yeah, it was like, so now that's been the ongoing thing, you know, the staccato. You got to come out with a staccato package, not the liquor. <laughs> <laughs> now it makes sense. Cool. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's quite an interesting uh, little bit of um, yeah information now, there. It sounds like um, you guys got a little brotherhood going on there, and, and oh, good man. camaraderie, oh, which oh. is great. It's, it's, they're just an amazing bunch of guys, you know. Like, you couldn't pick a, a better bunch of guys to be spending that much time with, you know. And they're all just amazing, just freaks. They're freaks at their instrument, you know. Yeah. It just – no one ever – it's really interesting. No one ever sort of pays each other compliments, you know. It's just a thing, you know. It's just like um, – no one's looking for a compliment. No one's. We're just there to just do our job, you know. And it's just this is mutual respect between us uh, that we know, you know, that you know they just play their instruments at the best, of, you know, of, of of their level. You know, they're just at this level where you just can't can't deny what they do. You know, it's just amazing. Um, but yeah, just top guys to boot, you know. And you know, very fortunate to be on the show. Man, this seems to be a really consistent thing uh, with all these chats that I've been doing. Um, is yeah, all these top guys, and especially the guys that get all the big session work, they're all good dudes. And this when I had a chat with Pete Thorne, this came up about just being easy to, to work with and, and hang out with and be on the road with goes a long way. Uh, you can have all the chops in the world, but if you're a fuck knuckle, nobody wants to be with you, man. No one wants to be you know for that 5 a.m. basement call. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think that goes a long way. It's just being oh, easy man. to work with and keeping things light, like you say, does take the pressure off. Yeah. Especially when you're doing live stuff. 
You know, you, you, nobody does. wants somebody that's the Nazi that's, this has to be like this. You know, no, 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 not at all. Keep it light. Man. Well, the thing is, you know, like our musical director, Scotty, he's, he's really, he's a placid guy, you know, and he's very focused at what he does. And um, it sort of starts there, you know, where I think if we had a musical director that was on edge all the time, you know, sort of pointing the finger at us and, you know, that would be a totally different vibe, you know. But because he's so, you know, easy, he's a patient guy and, you know, he's quite a placid dude, he, you know, that's where it sort of stems from, you know, from that. And then, you know, that's it. You know, we sort of, we go off that and it's just, it's all mutual, you know, amongst amongst the boys and, yeah, it's, it's good times, man. Great nice times. Nice one. Mate, with um, so much practice going in to keep up, you know, your, your legato style and everything, have you ever had any overuse injuries along the way? No, never. No. Never have I ever, ever had an injury to my wrists or fingers or anything. I mean, knock on wood, but uh, nothing to do with playing, yeah. uh, so to speak, where I've had, um, you know, pains or tennis elbow type injuries or anything in my wrists. No, never, never. I'm, I'm quite a light player. My yep. touch is quite light. Yep. Um, I don't over, you know, do these or you know, dig in here or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a very light player. So so when it, when it does come to sort of digging in a bit, you know, whether they throw me out the front like they did this week, actually, was it Monday? We did, um, so was it, are you going to go my way, Lenny Kravitz? They threw me out the front with the band and the boys. We went up there and you got to sort of put on a bit of a show and, um, you know, and the strap goes down a bit and where I'm used to having it a little bit higher when I'm doing my fusion thing, you know, it's just like it's got to be a bit lower. So, you know, there's all these little elements that come into play. And the other thing I did too, <laughs> oh, yeah, this is an interesting thing. I might just grab this acoustic just to show you what I did. With um, people wouldn't know. I'm surprised no guitarist picked up on it. But um, so when you're playing the Lenny Kravitz song, mm-hmm. yeah, you're playing that... Goes to the to the E, the bottom E, right? Yep, yep. Right. So I just took the A string off, right? Because oh. you don't use the A string. You just don't use the A string in in that song. Yeah. So because because I wanted to dig in and have a bit of a dance, you know, I thought if I'm dancing in that, I'm going to be doing these ones, you know, where I go. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be doing that, you know. So, yeah, yeah. So I took the A string off, you know, and then you know the gap obviously was was there, and I just could hit that that E string, you know, when I wanted to hit it. So oh, cool. That was that was. Little, I do those sort of little tricks every now and then, you know, if I, if I need to, you know. Yep, yep. Ease the pressure. But, yep. yeah. So I'm not so perfect after I am, I guys. Well, that, you got to make it easy for yourself. Man, yeah. you mentioned the, the strap height thing. And yeah. I've always been a really low rider kind of yep. player. And, and I'm not a short guy, man. I'm, I'm almost 6'3". Um, and, yeah, so the strap's almost as low as, as it'll go. A few years back, I was playing guitar in a, a Queen tribute show. So I was a, a Brian May impersonator. And yep. I raised the height of my guitar to exactly where Brian has it so that I would look the part. Yep. And I didn't click until recent times that, you know, I tried to raise a guitar because everyone's saying, you know, to get all that kind of fast stuff, you've got to have the yep. guitar pie. I started feeling, you know, halfway into gigs. Oh, man, my shoulders are just, ugh. And it clicked to me that it was the fact that I'd raised my guitar height. And the way I was playing before, I would have my arm just relaxed, my, my, my picking arm. Um, 
And then when I raised it, I actually had to hold my arm up higher, and that was the, the cause of the tension. So oh. I've recently dropped the height again. If I need to. Right. Yeah, yeah, because it goes against what everybody would say, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so now when I'm playing, I'm just going to cut to me. I don't have a strap for this. Yeah, wow. And my arm sort of all the way down, and everyone can see that I'm Jeez. still in my pyjama pants. Yes, yeah. I am. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm one of those right. guys, right? Yeah. And so, then to raise it to Brian's height, where the strings line up with your hip, yeah, right. You can see I'm, I'm holding it, and that that caused quite a bit of strain. Um, and it took me years to work out that's what that was. So yeah. now, if I if I do that, I've seen guys like Nuno who has it really low. Uh, and when it comes time to actually taking those solos, and you need that good hand posture, I can just tilt the guitar up a bit. You know? Yeah, right. Yeah, I I, I don't think I could ever play that low. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think I could ever play that low. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a high boy. And it's funny because James Avani, you bring James up again, there's a little quote that he had. It was pretty funny. Yeah. He goes, if I, if I can get my head through the strap, it's not high enough. <laughs> <laughs> Man, so I'm, I'm, really, I'm really digging I'm this guitar. I'm playing that quote to people, you know. Yeah, no, I've always been the low rider. Always been the low yeah. rider. Uh, yeah. I just picked that up again I, and – a friend of mine's selling that on the cheap. Yeah, I, might, right. I might do a restore, restoration job on that. The, the pickups aren't quite working. Needs total rewire. Needs a new Floyd Rose, but hmm, could get back into using a Valley Arts Good again. Guitar. Yeah. Good guitar. Yeah. Folks, I know we've got a few people watching. Um, if anybody has any questions, start throwing them into the chat room now because it does take a little while to get through questions. Um, and... In the meantime, while we're waiting for a few questions to come through, I want to ask you about your approach to the fretboard because everybody views the fretboard differently. Some guys use a cage system. Some guys are three notes per string. Other guys say they arrange it in pairs. What's your approach to fretboard navigation? Mine is a combination of, of the cage system and, um, you know, obviously root notes, you know, I must think. But I see everything in Dorian mode. Everything is Dorian for me. Really? Uh, Regardless of where I play, yeah, I always see it in Dorian because I find that um, it just – it's one of the scales that you can use that you can only have to one note to create you know, harmonic minor. It's really simple for me to do that and think that way. So everything always remains the same for me. So when I'm playing through key changes, it's always the same. It, it never changes. So I don't have to think, oh, now I'm in, you know, G Mixolydian, you know. I just think I'm in D Dorian, you know. And I know, like with any other um, scales, like there's certain certain notes you just avoid, you know what I mean? You know, certain things, uh, different chords that you avoid to to create, um, you know, or not to create to create a, um, a decent sound. But, um, you know, my, my way of thinking of it is that, uh, you know, if I'm playing over a minor chord, you know, if it's if it's a one chord vamp, you know, I'll go for the for this, you know, the six. If it if it's the Aeolian, you know, I'll you know avoid the flat six, you know, things like that. So it's a, the one note thing that I just avoid. Um, a lot of my shapes are based around just simple pentatonic shapes, um, you know, and wider intervals, you know, because I can't. I'm not a very good um, pentatonic player in the sense where. 
I just can't do anything fluidly, um, fluent, I should say, um, when I'm playing quicker passages on pentatonic scales. So I utilize more wider intervals with sweeping to create um, lines, um, and that works for me. And because they're wider intervals, um, I get to see a lot around that, you know, and what's within that. Um, so, you know, if I am in, you know, if I'm playing over a G7 chord, like I said, I will always see the D Dorian amongst that. But what I do apply is the G triads and the G7 triad within that Dorian thing. Okay. So it's almost like saying, it's almost like saying, you know, when when people are playing like an A blues, you know, and they're playing an A pentatonic, you know, they'll throw that major third in there, you know, and they create that A triad, right? I'm up throwing that third in there, all of a sudden it becomes that major. It's that way of thinking. You know, it's always just adding that one note here or there or taking it away, almost like you're playing an A blues and you're playing the blues note, the flat five. Um, you know, the same thing applies when you're playing like the, the A Dorian. You know, I'll add that six in there. and So it's always that, you know, but everything is based on the Dorian thing uh, and, and, the, and the pentatonic shapes. Yeah, but it's a different way of thinking about it. And a lot of guys are like, man, how, how do you think that way? You know, it's just... I trained myself to do it that way, and I just can't think any other way. You know, it just it just works for me, and and it's it's really easy, really yeah, right. easy okay. to do that. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you mentioned earlier on in the piece that you're mostly self-taught. Is this kind of thinking something you came up with yourself, or is this through the yeah, lessons with, yeah. with Dita? No, well, see, Dita, Dita showed me the patterns. So he 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 put everything in in patterns, right, in, in blocks. Uh, he showed me that, but. I, the only thing with that is that I couldn't, because I was so used to the three string, three note per string thing, that it was hard for me to sort of think down, like as in vertically down the, the neck. Um, and for me, it was always going across the fretboard or diagonally. But obviously, since then, a lot of things have changed, and a lot of my playing consists of everything sort of, you know, vertically into horizontal. And that's the way I see things too, you know, it's more visual as well. Yep. Where I'll. You know, if I wanted to work on something new, I'll go, oh, well, instead of saying to myself, oh, what notes can I play? I'd sort of say to myself, well, what direction can I take here? Yeah. Maybe I'll take a take a right, then a quick left, and go straight down, you know. And then all of a sudden, I've created a line. So that I do a lot of that, you know. It's, it's a it's a mug's way of playing, you know, and it, it, it is a really, you know, it's a bodgy way of approach, but it works for me, you know. And, and in my master classes, I show... That's what I, you know, show everyone in, in the room. It's it's all about my approach and the way I think of it. Uh, and in saying that, it is a very broken, basic way of looking at things. You know, it's not so full on, you know, because I never base anything around theory. It's all about, you know, getting the job done musically, and that's that's my, you know, my priority. Blaine. Cool. cool. Yeah. Cliff Gold's asking what your future is with music outside of the voice. And I'm, I'm going to take a quick break while you answer that. I'll be back in 30 seconds. But uh, Cliff, howdy, Cliff. How are you, mate? Uh, thanks for the question. Uh, that is a good question, mate. Look, to be honest with you, um, outside of the voice, I mean, I've always pushed my own thing, which is obviously my music, my playing, masterclasses, clinics, stuff like that. And I do a lot of recording at home, online lessons, etc. cetera. Um, so that, and I do a lot of, gigs around town so that that's always full on for me um 
as far as um, you know, another career is concerned, uh, uh, yeah, I couldn't see myself doing anything else apart from perhaps making pizzas at home. I'm, I'm an avid um, pizza maker. You know, bought my flour from Naples. Got my own wood fire pizza oven. Love nice. it. Any of my friends will tell you uh, that I'm very passionate about it. Um, but yeah, I say that's my passion, and guitar playing is my job. You know, so um, yeah. But yeah, that's that's where it's at for me, mate. It's always you know outside of the voice. You know, always in the second half of the year. You know, apart from the COVID thing that's going on now, I can't really do much. But every other year has always been. At this point, I'd be at the guitar show, and then I'd start my masterclass tour, which would go on, you know, until December. I'd probably punch out probably about 42 classes, um, and then I've got my Q and A sessions that I do at schools, various schools, talking about the show, um, and you know, talking about my career and hopefully inspiring the young ones, the new generation, to come through and and, and take up music. You know, that's important too to keep the ball rolling. Yeah. Awesome. So hopefully, yeah, it gives you a bit of an insight. Jimmy wants to know two questions: Is the action yeah. set fairly low for your legato technique, and does pineapple belong on pizza? <laughs> okay, I'll answer the most important question. That's the pineapple. Yep. Right? <laughs> there is no way the pineapple exists on a Naples pizza. Um, yeah, that's that's one rule I've got up on the wall on the on the chalkboard, mate. No pineapple on pizzas. Even after saying that, my kids love it, so I've got no choice but to put it on. Um, it. Yeah, yeah. But um, the the action on my guitars are set up at uh, four and three, uh, so which basically I'm thinking that Charles is talking in inches there. You wouldn't think I'm actually cabinet maker by trade. When I left school, I'm um, I did my cabinet maker's trade, um, and I am a qualified tradesman. Oh wow! So you'd think you'd think I'd, I'd know how to talk in inches, but we don't don't because I was taught in millimeters, you know. Um, so. The yeah, the four and three is probably um, you know four sixty fourths or something. I don't know the way he talks, but yep. I just know it's four and three. Um, and I think that is relatively you know standard. Um, but when I'm on the voice and stuff, my actions are at um, five and four, which is a little bit higher just to get get more sort of resonance out of the thing. Um, yeah, and the, and the thing is, on Charles' guitars, uh, you know, I've, I've, <laughs> there was a guitar that he got. I don't know if you remember it, um, Rick, or whether it was there last year. He had a, he had one of his um, model guitars, which is the more shreddier. It's a seven-stringer thing, and he set the action up. This is a testament to his guitars and how yeah. level his fretboards are, yep. right, that you could just barely put a paper slitter in there, like a piece of paper wow. under the strings. And the guitar was still playing. So figure that out, you know. It was ridiculously low. I was laughing. And, like, so, you know, the four and three in comparison to that is pretty good. I feel like I'm a, you know, I'm a Stevie Ray Vaughan, you know, yeah. even though I only play in tens and, um, you know. Yeah, so, yeah, that's it. And I play tens. So. Play tens. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. Uh, another Question from Cliff Gold: Current favorite artist, guitar-based or not? Um, you know what? Um, it's hard to hard to look. A lot of the younger guys. There's a lot of great players coming through. You know, with the younger generation. But what I'm finding is that, and I'm not being an old 
old fuddy-duddy here. Um, I find with a lot of the younger players, they're all starting to sound the same. Um, and I put that down to YouTube. I've got this love-hate relationship with YouTube. And I love it because it puts your, puts your plane out there, but I don't like it because it enables a lot of the younger players, the younger generation, to learn the guitar with their eyes as opposed to their ears. And the problem with that is that they're all sounding the same. They're all cloning each other. And I get sick of hearing, you know, um, certain styles because it's so overplayed now that it doesn't become this unique thing, you know, like it was back in the days where, you know, I'd have to wait for, for you know, Brett Garson's quid pro quo to be released, you know, before I, I got to hear it, you know. You'd only hear it, you wouldn't see it. So um, it forced me to learn stuff by listening, you know, with, and not learning it with my eyes because when Brett finally released his instructional video, I couldn't believe how different I was playing it. You know, it was just like, what? You know, I, I was disappointed because I thought I had to start again. But as much as I tried to sort of do what he does, it just I didn't feel natural to me. I'd already established a certain approach, you know, to my plane, and, and I just stuck with it, you know. At the time, I thought it was a bad thing, but I'm, I'm so, you know, glad that I did stick with it, and you know, because I do feel that I've created something, you know, that works for me, and I still continue to do that, you know, which is important. Um, yeah, it's, it's very rare that I'll listen to, to new players uh, for that reason. Um, I still listen to Scott Henderson, you know, when he releases, releases new stuff, still listen to Brett. And he, you know, releases, it's been a while, Brett, new album, come on. Um, um, you know, and just, I tend to lead towards the, the older players, you know, just because I just find there's a, there's um, something about, you know, there's, there's this depth, you know, in the in the playing that I, that I gravitate towards, you know. And I'm not dissing the new players because there's some phenomenal players out there that, you know, I just look at and the, my jaw just drops to the floor. You know, um, but yeah, it's look, you know, the older guys for me have always been where it's at. Yep. Um, you know, I love, uh, I love Josh Smith, fantastic player. You know, Eric Gales, those guys are just, you know, the kings for me. You know that, that Eric Gales, Eric yeah, Gales, man, phenomenal. I saw phenomenal. him at uh, the Blues Fest a couple of years back. Oh and, my god. Uh, it was funny because I was, I was right down the front. There wasn't that many people there. And there was at one point where he was just so into it that he was just throwing his hands off the guitar and throwing them back. And it was like he was screaming at God when he was playing, just ah, kind of thing. And it was just the most emotional it's that. It's that. freaking it's that. thing. It was like, yeah. dude, where are you playing from? Yeah. yeah. Oh. He's so animated. Like, forget the guitar playing. Push that aside and just watch him. Watch the emotion that goes into each note and the way he plays and the way he yells and that. And then the guitar playing is just this ice on the cake, you know. It's just like, yeah. oh, yeah. It's, it's a journey, you know. Like, oh, yeah, phenomenal, phenomenal. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, I, I did yeah. Uh, send an, an email to his website. There was a contact on there to see if he'd want to come on, but I haven't heard anything back. But, yeah, it'd be yeah. great cat to talk to, man. Oh, man, that'd be phenomenal. You mentioned Brett Garstead and Time for a New Album. There was a video getting around a couple of weeks ago um, of him singing with... um, Oh, yeah, Joe Joe Perino, unbelievable. I had no idea Uh, Brett could sing like that. Blew me away. Yeah. Blew me away. I'd never 
Well, I mean, final, the final band always has so many great singers in there, you know, three backing singers or the rest of the band. I had no idea that Brett could actually sing. And to hear that was yeah. like, what yeah. What the hell? No, I'm not. Yeah, yeah. He's just, just a freak of nature. Yeah. Love the guy. So speaking about him, um, about time he brings out a new album, how far are you into one yourself? Ha, good question. I, I, I haven't written it yet, but just a little bit of an insight to the way I write things. Yeah. Right? I write them and release them. So I've actually got about two albums worth of songs that I wrote about three years ago. Because when I write, I sort of lock my, myself in a room for two weeks, three weeks max, yeah. and I'll write an album. And the way I write is I write everything on acoustic guitar because melodies for me take whole position priority. So I will write everything to a groove on acoustic, chords, melodies. I will never, I will not touch the electric guitar until I've got drums, bass, and keys on it. And then I'll put my parts on the top, you know, because I'll play to the guys so it sounds a little bit more uniformed as opposed to me going to them and saying, oh, can you play this, this and that? I prefer for them to bring stuff to the table as opposed to being, um, you know, obviously stuck to a certain part that I've written. Even in the drum grooves, no feels, just yep. straight groove yep. all the way through. And then as they bring their flavour, it's, it's a lot more exciting for me to hear that as opposed to sort of writing feels or writing certain things. Um, just doesn't do anything for me. So my first album, my only album, um, I wrote in three weeks. And then it took the process of probably about six months to complete uh, due to the fact that a lot of the guys that I wanted on the, on the album were touring or I had Nathan Cavalieri mix it, mix oh, the cool. album. Yep. Um, a good friend of mine did an incredible job. So that was very random because we'd go there once a week at Songzu where he was um, doing all these jingles and stuff, and I'd go there and we'd mix. We'd, we'd start at 8 p.m. and finish at like about 1 a.m. and we'd do one song, you know, and then I'd wait for him and he'd wait for me because I was a tourist. So it was a long process. So I, as mentioned, I did, uh, I have written a couple of albums over the past three to four years at separate points, but now I listen back to them and I think, you know what, I don't, it's not me. Yeah, you know, right. I like to capture the moment of where I'm at, you know, and that was the moment and I should have finished them. But, you know, for me, they're just songs that are going to sit there. I'll use it for something else if I have to. But, but yeah, once I get into my new studio, I'll, um, I'll be writing and then releasing something straight away pretty much. Yeah. Cool. cool. Yeah. Another question here from Jimmy. What is your most memorable experience sharing the stage with an idol slash role model? Uh, what was my experience like? Uh, your most memorable experience sharing a stage. I'd have I'd have to say, um, without the question of a doubt, was Roachford. I don't know if most many of you guys remember Roachford. Um, he did an Australian tour, and I played guitar for him, which was probably the most memorable and most satisfying gig I've ever done. And I think Erwin's cool. done that gig too. I did. Um, I did. I think I did the early ones. I did two, two years in a row, and then the third one I think Irwin did. Um, just an awesome guy to play for. Yeah. You know, he's all about just letting go, do your thing, and do what you want to do. Obviously, with the, the big hits, you know, only to be with you and this generation. All those were had dedicated parts, but a lot of his newer stuff were quite open. 
allowed to just stretch out and play, you know, and he was so appreciative, you know. He'd be yelling like Eric Gale style across the stage, just, yeah, yeah, you know, like that. And it just psyched you up even more, you know. So yeah. that was just an incredible tour, two two years worth um, that I'll never forget, you know. And there were some funny moments that happened on the tour as well. Um, and I still keep in touch with him, you know. Like, cool. you know, he's, he's just a legend, dude. Yeah. So that that that's definitely up there on, on, on the highlights reel. You know, I did nine years with Delta. We had some great moments there. Did a lot of stuff overseas with her. Um, you know, very grateful for that time. Um, while I was in the band and stuff, um, yeah, I, I did a lot of playing with a lot of various, a lot of acts that came off Idol at the time, Australian Idol. That was my time to do a lot of the profile stuff. Uh, it's gotten to the point now where it's, it takes a lot for me to go on the road. Um, it has to be worth my while to go out, okay. um, you know, to sort of leave my family behind. The only time I will go on tour is when I do my thing now, um, unless it's with the boys from the voice band, Adam Sofo, who is musical director for the Ministry of Sounds gig uh, with the orchestra. So it's called the Ministry of Sounds Orchestrated. Uh, and we've done two runs of that, and that's like with a 50-piece orchestra, and we do all the the big dance hits, you know, but it's all live. You know, it's not crazy. That's it's right. Amazing, yeah, that's right. Amazing yeah. gig. Yeah, but you guys are up here. Guitar. You guys were up yeah. here not that long ago. Um, yeah. well, probably within the last year or so. No. Yeah. Man, I remember seeing, like, it was the day after and you guys were flying out and it was like, yeah. oh, no, I missed out on that. Yeah, that was, yeah. yeah. Uh, incredible, incredible band, like a great band. But it's just, for me, it's more, it's it's hardly guitar playing, in it? There's a lot of muty sort of dance, funky sort of stuff, and a couple of power chords here and there and some swells and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But for me, it's just having a great time on stage and dancing around like a duck in a hot plate, you know, basically. Yeah. Cool. So it's, it's just amazing gig, you know, and it's the boys from the boys band. So we, we have a we have a great time, you know, on tour. But apart from that, you know, it's, it's it's yeah, it takes a lot to get out there now, you know, unless it's worth my while. If it's a, if it's a good guitar gig, I will take it. But, you know, they're, you know, they're very rare these days. You know, not many solos in pop songs. Yeah, it's become a bit like that, which is a real shame. Yeah. Yeah, back to solos. I say. Yeah, yeah. Um, mate, can you believe we've been talking for over two hours already? Wow, serious? Yeah, yeah, yeah man. Two hours. Oh, two hours eleven and twenty seconds, right oh, there. I apologise uh, to everybody. No, not at all. I told you the time flies. Yeah. Um, so, folks, if you've got any any questions, please fire them off. Uh, I'm just going to. I've got one for you concerning your uh, gig, your, your rig for the. The voice gig. You said that the Axe FX is like ninety percent of the gear you use. Is there anything else that you're using with the Axe FX? Uh, on the show, it's a hundred percent. It's a hundred percent. Okay, hundred percent on the on the show. But apart from the show, when I'm doing gigs around town, I'll use my Fender Tone Master. Sure. Um, and my AX8, which is fractal steel, and I just pour my sounds and that directly into the amp, and then that's it. Yeah, that's pretty much my rigs. I've I've never been a gear collector. Um, as far, I mean, back in the 80s, I had a rack, you know, that was about so high, you know. Yeah. And I, I don't know what I was shoving in there at one stage, you know. I'd just find things that looked like a rack and just put them in there. They weren't even switched on, you know, just to make sure I had the biggest rack. Yeah. Know? And as I mentioned, you know, I had the ADA, I had the JMP1 there and the, and the VHT power amp, and you were saying that Steve, that's these new ones. So, um, yeah, and that's what I was running. But after the 
I was running the ADA um, in the JP1, I had an Egnator preamp four channel thing that I was using with my VHT, um, and that was killer. I regret selling that. That um, that did so many gigs, just a great setup. Loved it. Um, but yeah, I've always been sort of a rack guy, you know. Yeah. Um, loved just the one one button, you know, change change your sound sort of approach. Yeah, um, yeah. But but on my on my masterclass tour, I only I bring three pedals. Uh, on tour, just little little mini pedals. Yeah. Um, and I just plug into the the tone master. And that's it, you know. It's funny, man. Um, like the, I've had these sitting beside me for a little while. I want to do a comparison of the two because I was always an ADA guy and yeah. I, I knew that the JMP1 was out as well. I never did get a chance to compare the two. Yeah. And so I borrowed that JMP1 off local player Scott Watman. Yeah. And I want to do a bit of a tone comparison between the two. That would be great. Yeah. And great. I just finished uh, – I did some video for a, uh, a cable company which has had me – busy for the last couple of weeks behind the scenes but after we finish this i'm going to start writing a little tune to showcase the two oh, of these and just do a comparison you know of what it's they sound great. like yeah. um because yeah. i want to get back into the rack thing myself man i was always the rack guy and i yeah. do like just hitting one button on the floor that changes everything yeah. not totally. having pedals on the floor because let's face it when you're playing small gigs yeah you got drunk people putting their beer all over your gear and oh, stuff yeah. so no, um no, I've got I've got a foot, foot controller back there that I bought off Nine Inch Nails. I love Nine Inch Nails. No way. Yeah, yeah, man. I bought this. They they went on hiatus for a little while. Let me just show off my groovy um, pajama pants again. Yeah. <laughs> What's on there? Is that the All Access? No. Yes, it is. Is it? Yeah. I could tell by the buttons. Yeah. There you so go. That's, that's still got the um, all the. The markings from from Nine Inch Nails. Yep. Oh, that's um, so cool. Yeah, and I've just put the two expression pedals. So I want to either pick one of those two to go with using live, yeah, or the Synergy setup. You know, the have you are you aware of the Synergy system, which is a, an extension yeah, of Bruce yeah. Egnator's modular. Yeah, yeah, setup. yeah. Keen to try one of those, but you did bring up uh, Bruce Egnator's four channel preamp. And yeah. he's reissuing that soon. Get out of here. Yeah, I had him on for a chat a few weeks back. Oh, wow. It's coming back out. I say that. Hmm. It's funny that you say you regret selling yours because yeah. I think Irwin had one of the first ones, a, a green one. That's right. Uh, and Bruce sort of brought up whether he still had that and unfortunately he sold that as well. Uh, yeah, so I know that. few we're, options. We're about this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. just as you were talking about Axe Effects before, you know, the, I was starting to think, oh, maybe I should get one of these one of these here Axe Effects because I, I will admit I did try Axe Effects back in the it – was, it was Ultra before Axe Effects 2, wasn't it? Yeah. I think that's what I had. That's wasn't, right, the Ultra. wasn't quite there for me just yet. No, uh, no, no, it wasn't. It sounded great on its own. Getting it yep. to sit in a track. You mentioned about how well yours sits in a mix. Yeah. Back then, that was the thing for me was it didn't sit in a mix well. And I sort of found myself going back towards tube amps and yep. liking them. But, man, you, you, you've raved about them. Erwin raved about them. Yep. Um, I've had a few guys now absolutely rave. Um, 
Dave Leslie, Baby Animals. I went to I've known Dave for a long time and went to one of yeah. their sound checks and he was showing me how he he was using that as a front end now and Wow. So it got me thinking, but then again, I do like having knobs to turn. I'm going to do a bit yeah. of a shootout between some of these things. I, don't, I need a new yeah. live rig, so. Yeah, it would be interesting to see what I, – I, I, rem, I do remember them being very different, you know, in the tonality. I just remember the JP1 always sounded quite tuby, you know. It's almost – yeah, it just, it just sounded good. But all, all my heart was always with the ADA all the time. And me I regret too. selling that. Yeah. I've got to say, though, man, having fired that up in recent times, and yeah. I, um, my pride and joy for a few years there was a Friedman small box amplifier. And yeah. once I got that, uh, I, I sold it about a year ago um, to fund an overseas trip, but I hope to get one again soon. Yeah. Um, Owen's just chimed in with IE4. Yes, that's the one. Yeah, um, yeah the... Playing the Friedman app really opened my eyes to clarity and yeah. being able to hear all the notes within a chord when, yeah. regardless of the amount of gain that you're using. So when I fired this back up again, I was a little disappointed. I think oh. taste, yeah, I'd sort of gotten used to that articulation. And in fact, mm. I was doing a show. I play guitar for a group called Absolutely 80s when they come to Queensland, which is, I'm not sure if you're aware, Scott Kahn, Kids in the Kitchen, and he has... Yeah, yeah, Scott Kahn, Scott Kahn. Yeah, a whole bunch yeah. of guys from 80s bands. Like, um, yeah, come on. So, yeah, I used that at a rehearsal, and I can remember he sort of looked at me and went, oh, geez, your tone's a bit scratchy. Yeah. Uh, and I had a couple of amps there, and I quickly switched to my, my Friedman head, and he went, yeah, that's better, that's better. Yeah. So I think our tastes... Over time, yeah. have changed. Well, they they mature. They do like a good wine, you know. Mm. Over the years, it just yeah. I mean, what we what we what we play through and what we're used to, you know. Technologies. I mean, technology has changed, especially with obviously you know, the modelling side of things. And speaking of that, you know, I want to like that demo that you put up for the Satriani thing just blew my mind. That was oh, thanks, the man. Tone, the playing. I was just like, what? The, I'm thinking. What the hell? This this is just identical. Like I'm a stickler when it comes to tones. Yeah. And I know that always with me, always with you, tone. Like, mate, I know that tone anywhere, you know. And I've studied it, and I know Satriani did the whole thing with they they did you know half of his sound was direct and half the sound was like there was a whole mash of things going through for that sound, you know. And it's just this 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 the sound almost I don't know whether you describe it as a half cock. Wow, but it is, isn't of, it? It's you know, got that it's like all, all kind of sound about happens. it. Yeah, yeah. that yeah. sort of happens in the attack of the of the of the note. You know, that just but everything about that sound it was just like holy dooly, what just blew my mind, man. And it's mate, awesome stuff. Well, thanks, dude. Thanks. <laughs> I, I'm going to confess. I'm going to confess. Yeah. Um, when the whole lockdown thing happened, I, I asked you before about overuse injuries, and I did have some tendonitis going on. Um, so when the whole lockdown thing happened, I just took a break from guitar for about three months. Wow. Um, and I happened um, through Louis Shelton. He had yeah. got a IK multimedia deal going on Amplitude, and, but he wasn't that up on installing it all. So I was giving him a hand with all that. So I was communicating with the guys at IK and um, I had to copy for myself of just Amplitude. Yeah. 
And I heard that they were coming out with the Satriani pack. They hadn't quite put it out yet. And a friend of mine had the Chrome Boy and I knew it was yeah. for sale. And I thought, oh, before that goes, I might try and do a cover. So when I played that, I hadn't played guitar much. Oh, really? Yeah, I'd only picked it up again a couple of days beforehand. Oh, I had wow. no, no calluses on my finger on my fingers so that hurt man i did seven takes and had to try and pick you know, oh yeah and um <gasps> by the end of seven i'm like oh man <laughs> that hurts yeah, and there was yeah, one or wow. two little runs on that i'm like oh didn't quite nail that that little run there oh, it sounds great though man I was, I was just smiling i was just like oh this is awesome it just brought back so many memories and you know it was just great to hear you do that you know oh, thanks, with, that, with the right sound you know, well change, the thing you know? is I didn't have that pack at the time. I was playing through Amplitude, but not the Satriani pack. So, oh. yeah, that came out afterwards. And, oh. yeah, so I'm playing it just through another thing. But when I recorded it, it's just the DI signal and then the being DI, the played back. You put that afterwards. So Holy the man, day that I got the reviewer copy of it, yeah. I quite literally put it on. I'd already recorded the piece, went to the preset of Always With Me, Always With You, and hit it on that and it played back through it and I had that exact reaction where I just went fuck me that sounds exactly like the record there's that sound so yeah that was a, an after thing for me absolutely Sorry, I lost you there for a second. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. you just you just did a, a whole max headroom on me for a second there, mate. So yeah, I yeah, 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 yeah. But um, yeah, when it played back, um, so that's the preset. I did increase just the ambience on it, the, the delay and reverb, but just a hair, just to match the tone. Yeah. But apart from that, that's yeah. just the preset. And oh, I haven't explored much cool. of the rest of it, so I need to get get back in there and check out the rest of it. But they have a Brian May yeah, pack killer. as well. Oh, uh, wow, that'd be yeah. interesting. So that's got the whole harmonizers and everything going in there. Oh, wow. Um, and I I need to get back onto Harley Benton, but they have a, a red special copy that they were apparently we were going to send to me to okay. do a, a bit of a, a Queen medley. Um, so yep. I'm looking forward to playing that through that. All so, right. um, yeah, um, it's funny. Somebody say, buy the Chrome Boy. But out of my range, yeah. man, my, my friend Ben is selling that. Um, yeah. but yeah, I'm a broke musician. <laughs> so another thing from Jimmy here, mate, notice his hybrid picking fingernails are long. Does he do anything to harden them? Seen people who use nail polish, toilet paper and layer them up. Referring to your picking mm. hand, man. Do you yeah. blow the nails? And- um, I mean, no, these, these are it. Yeah. I just, I just basically follow them. I never put hardener on. The only time I do put hardener on them is if I um, if there is an acoustic piece uh, on the voice that I've been practicing for the last two weeks to nail it. Um, I find that it does chew my nails down, so I quickly put the hardener on there, shape them, and they're good as gold, you know. Yeah, right. But as far as, far as um, no, I'll just keep them natural, you know. That's it. It's only those three fingers. Yep. You know? um, yeah. It's so you but, you do the whole. You do the whole hybrid thing do, with fingers. Yeah, I don't do that much, to be quite honest with you. Um, a lot of my playing revolves around um, the economy picking, as Jeremy Barnes, another great player, man, phenomenal player, has pointed out. I, I don't even know what I'm doing half the time, but we sit in a room regularly, and, and he'll point it out. Man, do you know you, 
you do a lot of economy picking. And I'm like, what's that? You know? He's like, you know, you sort of sweep. And I was like, yeah, I don't know, man. I'm just trying to sort of get away across the strings. I don't know what I'm doing after time. Yeah. But as far as the, the full hybrid like Brett does or, you know, some of the, the more modern players do, no, I'm nowhere near that. Nowhere near. I'll use more the pick than I do than my fingers. The fingers are there for core grabs or if I have to play intervals of six or anything that involves a little bit of jumping, I will do that. Yeah, definitely. You know? But, um, yeah, apart from when it comes to the Legato thing, very rare that I will sort of pluck, but, yeah, not a consistent yeah, hybrid right. thing going on there at all. Okay. Yeah. Man, I was, I was privileged enough to um, hang out with Tom Quayle about a year ago. Oh, uh, killer. In, in Germany as part of 42 Gear Street. Um, oh, really? And He's ridiculous. Yeah, I, I, uh, I hosted a quick little, it was just a real impromptu thing, a guitar battle between yeah. him, him and my friend Sammy Bowler uh, from Detroit. Who's, oh, was that you? Yeah, you've seen that, have you? Yeah, they did that. I've seen it. That was hilarious. <laughs> that was hilarious. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah, dude, like, that was awesome, you know. The thing is, is, is that, um, was it Sammy, did yep. you say? Yep. Yeah. Like he's like you can't you can't you know you can't touch that guy. Like when it comes to that stuff, you just can't keep up. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know Tom was flying doing his thing, which was awesome. It was just great to hear the different takes. You know, yeah. But Sammy would be just going full full eighties man, and like I was just like, oh man, how's he gonna top that? You know, and it and just it just got funnier and funnier. You know. And dude, Sammy is just the nicest guy you'd ever meet yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, and it was one of those real impromptu things. I had some time booked in, in Henning's main studio. Yeah. Time come up and I was actually hanging with Dave Friedman. I was just like, oh man, I, I've got time in the room. I don't know what to do. And he's just looked at me. He's gone, I want to see a guitar battle between Sammy and, and Tom Quayle. And I'm like, you reckon Sammy would do it? And he says, I'll make him do it. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> so hilarious. Yeah, like, yeah, I'll jump in there. But what I was getting at is... I got to um, up close, sit next to Tom Quayle as he yeah. was warming up, doing his, his yeah. thing. And there is another video on my channel where I get the, the phone out and I go right up to, to his picking hand and as yeah. he's doing it all. And he's got that yeah. whole multi-pick yeah. thing yeah, going on. Yeah, he's all about that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, to see it up close. Yeah. The other it's thing ridiculous. though, man, is when he's doing that legato thing, hearing, hearing it, the slap of the strings against the stainless steel frets – yeah. It's like a typewriter, just... Yeah. yeah. The old paddle pop stick and the spokes, you know? Yes. Those ones. It's yeah. Just, like, yeah. just consistency, you know? Mm. He's an amazing player. We, me and Tom, you know, have had, have had some really interesting chats, man, you know, of recent. And we've known each other back, you know, in the vintage days of MySpace. Yeah. You know? So so we, we were sort of talking back then and back in those days. And, man, just... I just remember hearing him for the first time, just going, what the hell is, like, this guy is just, like, light years ahead of everyone else, you know? It's just so inspiring to hear, you know? And we, we've we kept in touch, and we always have a good laugh, you know, when, we, when we're having a chat. And, but he's one guy that um, that has taken the legato thing to, in a different direction, you know, in the sense of... You can tell Tom Quayle from, you know, a thousand guys lined up. You know, you know it's him. Um, the, the only thing that um, doesn't upset me, just I feel that um, obviously a lot of the guys that are trying to clone him, there's a lot of those guys out now and it's, it's becoming the same 
the same, the same, the same, you know, those younger guys getting back to that whole thing um, where, you know, it's Tom's thing, you know, and when he plays it, I get so much enjoyment hearing him play and it's just when I hear other players doing it, it's just like, it's great, it's an inspiration thing and it's great the players are, are latching onto that. Um, it's just I'm finding that they, they're sticking to that thing, you know, and they're, and they're taking it to the grave and, and it's all about that, you know. Um, but I find if they tried to do it without watching him, yep. it'd be a different story, you know what I mean? Yep. They'd quickly realise that, hey, you know, that's not how he's doing it, but this is how I do it and I can take it in this direction. Yep. I'd like to hear more of that, you know, from the younger guys. Sorry, I've gone off rail here. But no, that's fine. Speaking that's fine. But, yeah, I listen to Tom do it, mate. I just just lights up the room. My smile just goes from here to there. I just love hearing it, you know? Yeah. It's just killer. The other thing, too, on, on the video, if folks are interested in what we're talking about here, there, there is a, a video on my channel where uh, he's let me play his guitar, and he tunes all to fourths. Fourth, yeah. 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 To eliminate that shift on the B string. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, incredible. Incredible. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing that um, – He's taken on that direction and stuff, and he's that's his thing, man. You know, yeah. I remember trying that once. I think for a day, I was like, "Nah, can't do it. There's no way. How how can I apply this to what I'm doing?" And it just, I just can't do it. You know, Tom does his thing, and that's Tom. Yeah. Whatever you see, it's Tom. You know, Tom doesn't have um, have to worry about playing in covers bands. He doesn't have to worry about you know doing other gigs and stuff like that. Tom does his thing and, you know, ultimately that's where I want to be, you know. This is what I do. Yeah. This is what I am, you know. Yeah. But, you know, for the meantime, I still need to feed my family. <laughs> yeah, exactly, man, exactly. Folks, um, last chance to ask any questions if you have any because we are, well, two and a half hours now, mate. I, I will round things up. Oh, so if yeah. anybody has any questions, speak now forever. Hold your peace. Yes, correct. But, um in the meantime, Michael, man, I really want to thank you for your time. Thank you, Rick. I yeah. really appreciate it, man. You're doing some great stuff, man. Great interviews with some heavy hitters. I don't even know why you've got me on the show, but, mate, I appreciate it. Oh, it man. Makes, it makes me look good amongst the elite, you know? Well, it's just like... mate, now I've seen videos of you playing over the years and, and thought, wow, how's that? So when you commented on my little Satriani video, that was a, a perfect uh, introduction to get... Hey, Michael, come on over, oh, man. Oh, no, I appreciate it. That was awesome, mate. Yeah. No, I'm glad I'm, you know, I finally got to speak with you and obviously it doesn't end here, mate. Our, our relationship will bloom and it will grow and hopefully when I'm in um, up there, Brisbane, why, um, mate, you can come in and uh, hopefully sit in my master classes and, you know, as a special guest and, um, yeah, we can Sink some beer together, mate. Would love to. Whereabouts are you based, mate? Are you you Mel you're Sydney. in Melbourne? Sydney. Sydney. Sydney, Sydney, okay. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, mate, I hope to be doing a bit of when the whole travel thing kicks back in. Um, you know, catch up some with some players when I'm out and around, uh, out and about. Um, maybe come do a bit of a quick look at your rig or something if I'm down that way. Yeah. Or if you're touring touring up this way, we'd love to do that. Yeah, absolutely, mate. No, no, no problem at all. Awesome. Anytime. Awesome. As Where I as I explained to you earlier, mate, I used to have my end screen on my little controller, but I accidentally hit that as I did an end broadcast in the middle with Thomas McRocklin. That was embarrassing. So I'm going to have to <laughs> go to the mouse. There's my end screen up there. Folks, <sighs> thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. I'm hitting the Thanks, button Rick. now. Ciao, folks. Ciao.